You spoke easily, Starling. Not yet, sir. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. And how is Officer Stewart? The one who was first to see my basement. Emotional problems I had. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. I see you there. And I see me desired by you. In the silver mirrors of your eyes. Freeze! Put your hands over your head and turn around. Spread your legs. Stop. Ready when you are, Sergeant Pembrey. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast with me, your host, Rob Daniel. And as always, I am thrilled to say that I am joined by my learned co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. Good evening and hello. And it's a pleasure to be here. And this is a special look back episode. So as with all these, we are joined by guests. And we have two splendid guests tonight who have both been on the show before. So they will be known to regular listeners. So we have... Sarah Johnson, welcome back. Thank you, lovely to be here. And Ian Bird, welcome back. Bonsoir. Thank you very much for having me. By the way, aren't we your regular listeners? Yes, that's right. (laughs) There is a Venn diagram between the contributors and uh, the listeners. It's not a circle, so that's fine. (laughs) It's like one of those those, uh, sort of magic, magic eye tricks, you know. It is two circles, but they're very almost overlapping. (laughs) So yes, this is a special look back episode. So today we will be looking at two classic movies, The Silence of the Lambs, which celebrates its 30th anniversary this year, and Manhunter, which celebrates its 35th anniversary this year. So The Silence of the Lambs was released on Valentine's Day in the States in 1991. It was released here on the 31st of May, 91. It became a zeitgeist movie. It caught like a global interest in this sort of story. Um, Off a $19 million budget, it went on to make £273 around the world, £17 million in the UK. The next year, it won the five main Oscars. So it won Best Actress, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film. So yes, it really was a huge success. Wasn't it Best Director as well for Demi? Mm. Oh, I missed that one. Yes. Yes, it did. Yes. It wasn't nominated for Best Score, which I think is a bit of a crime because Howard Shaw's score is great for this movie. I totally agree. It got editing and sound design, didn't it? But it didn't get like any of the other sound ones, which is a shame. That's right. And I'm the only other person who watches all of the like the technical Oscars as well. (laughs) So I can remember. (laughs) And yes. So um, for Jonathan Demme, this was an unusual choice of director to make this movie, where he started off making films for Roger Corman. Um, so he did stuff like Caged Heat. He made small dramas during the 80s. He also made Something Wild, which was uh, the yuppie kind of horror comedy film with Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith. And he made Married to the Mob with Chell Pfeiffer. So he was known for Light Affair. And then suddenly he was doing this film that was this very dark thriller. And uh, then it turned out to be this great movie and I think everyone was surprised including him who on the audio comedy says yeah I still can't quite believe that I made this movie and that it came out so well and of course the big thing that it did which means that other really important elements of it 
have been overlooked or pushed to one side uh, was that it introduced Hannibal Lecter to a wide global audience. Uh, so Hannibal Lecter played by Anthony Hopkins, of course. Of course, it wasn't the first time that there was a screen Hannibal Lecter. He appeared in Manhunter, played by Brian Cox. And we'll get into that as well. But first of all... You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, spins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. Thank you, Clary. Thank you. I'm imagining that all bar one of us saw this at the cinema when it came out. Or am I wrong? I mean, <laughs> if, 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 my, if, my, if, we, if I'd gone to see it on opening day, I would have been a year and eight days old. <laughs> so you would have been a lamb ready for the slaughter. <laughs> <at that time. laughs> and Ian, did you see this at the cinema? This was the first 18 I ever saw at the cinema. My dad took me. It's a good one to go and see. I think I was a couple of months over 18 when I saw it. I'm trying to, I think it was as I was coming to the end of... Second year in co- in college when I went to see it, if I remember. It is not the first 18 I saw. That was uh, when I saw Aliens when I was only 13. <laughs> my, my friend's granddad worked at the cinema and he very illegally snuck me and him in to see it, which we, we were far too young. And it is also why it's still my favourite film, because it was awesome. Yeah, that <laughs> is a killer film to watch. Even more at 13, I was like, oh, this is amazing, I'm terrified. I didn't see Aliens <laughs> until so late. A mate of mine saw it on video and spent 20 minutes telling me absolutely everything that happened in that film. <laughs> that's my that's my Aliens experience. My mum my did the same to me when I was nine with Raiders of the Lost Ark. She came back from the cinema and woke me up and explained <laughs> the entire film to me. And then went, am I going to see it tomorrow? And I, I can remember only being nine in my top bunk bed and going, I don't need to. <laughs> Um, it's too late then. <laughs> I, my um, first 18 was Goodfellas. And that was in, I think, February of 91. It got to our local cinema quite late. Wow. Um, and I dragged my mum along to vouch for me, even though I looked about 30. Um, but I was 16, so therefore it's like, I have to see this film and there can be no doubt that I can see it, so you need to come along to vouch for me. Was that your worst memory <laughs> of childhood? <laughs> No, actually, my worst memory of childhood, it wasn't, but I, I really thought it was going to be, was when I dragged my mum along to see The Silence of the Lambs with me. And oh. it's like... What did multiple mix say? Well, that's the thing, is that because this film is a 15 now, so the BBFC yeah. downgraded it in 2017 from an 18 to a 15. And I was amazed by that because there was just nothing more adult than The Silence of the Lambs the first time I saw it because it's got the C word in it and you didn't hear it that much in films and not at all really on the telly back in the early 90s. So that scene when she goes in to see Lecter 
and Migs kind of hisses, I can smell your cunt. I thought, well, that was a hiss, so maybe she didn't hear that. But it is her dispassionate yeah. repeating it. I think the thing that makes – I agree with you about the certificate, and I'm actually all for lower certificates quite often, but there's a, the seriousness of lambs that is sort of unremitting lends it a, a real sense of kind of knotted stomach dread, doesn't it, the entire yeah, time? Yeah, it, it really does. And then, it, is, it is a grief-stricken film, isn't it? Wrongful death. Yes. So I thought, okay, right, so we got away with that one. And then Lecter says, Multiple nigs in the next cell. He hissed at you. What did he say? He said, I can smell your cunt. And I was going, oh, God. (laughs) You said it again. Mum's going to say, right, come on, we're going. We're going. (laughs) But she didn't, and that was fine. Then that scene, as we all know, ends with nigs flinging semen into her face and it was like i just was so sure that my mom was gonna say no i'm not watching this but happy ending well migs had a happy ending yeah (laughs) so but interesting isn't it it is important in both the film and the book that that's the thing that in it sort of spurs lector to help her and in the book it's much more complex and murky but is it is he slightly excited by it is there something strange another going on besides him also being offended whereas it's very implicit in the film that he finds doesn't he say he finds discourtesy offensive and that's and I find that and that's and that also sets the tone for the film that this is not going to follow the pattern of uh women who are scantily clad in peril or women being sexualized in a way that is kind of quite normal unfortunately in that kind of you know genre and I thought that I, I remember thinking as shocking as it is it also sort of sets its stall out early as to it's going to be very different yeah, and I think that's the thing that, that really made it cut through and turned it into a phenomenon, was that this was like a different treatment of something that everyone had seen this sort of film before. We've all seen the film where someone is investigating and you're having to find a killer and it's like a race against time. But this was just very, very different. I mean, I can really, really remember the audience reaction. There was no one in there that didn't know what they were going to watch. I think I saw it about a week after it came out or something like that, the day before my maths GCSE. <laughs> <laughs> But the entire audience was just so on board with the film and just yeah, reacted so well to it. And can you remember the audience reactions when you went to see it? I definitely can. I really can't. No. No, I was just absolutely up for this movie. It was, um, God, no. I had <laughs> clearly no empathy whatsoever when I was seeing this film. <laughs> Jonathan Demme says on the audio commentary about how the audience reacted, and it's exactly the same way that my audience reacted. It's the big laugh, isn't it? Oh, that's the bit I remember. Go when on. she bursts into Catherine Rebecca Martin and she goes, you're safe, FBI, you're safe. And I remember so clearly everybody in the cinema laughing. <laughs> because right. she's positioned it almost like, a th- and only feels almost a third of the frame, not even halfway. And, she, and it's a brilliant shot because she looks tiny. And they know way at all is anybody safe, and yet she believes it. So that's what makes. I mean, it's a but there's there's not that many laughs in the film. But it's a weird thing though because the laughs the laughs aren't. I mean, obviously Lecter gets his cheap laughs. I always remember the one where she's going into the um the yourself self storage. Says, should this you know door collapse and should I be (laughs) trapped? Yeah, this is where. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. You just give a really really good chuckle at that point of like which is actually exactly exactly how it's described in the book as well it's yeah definitely have you guys read the book before you saw the film yes yeah yeah definitely wow okay no because this was what's amazing because this for me i was the same year as you was gcse's so i was awesomely stressed not sort of sleeping very much staying up Mm -hmm. late 
and um, this was all over that Cinema Attractions TV show we've talked about yeah. before. So they were doing all that, oh, this movie Science of the Lambs. And I think when they were talking about it, they literally showed the Chilton walking Clarice into the dungeon as their clip of this film that was just around the corner. So I'm guessing that would have been end of 1990, beginning of 1991. And it was like, oh, 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 get into this. And I remember mm. this was the kind of age where I was kind of like, it sounds stupid, starting to read grown-up newspapers and kind of like <laughs> those Sunday supplements with all sorts of articles about books that you'd never heard of before and suddenly everything was starting to feel a little bit more sophisticated and there was an article about science of the lambs because of the rush up for the movie and so oh this is it this is, i'm running down the library and those were two books i read before i saw science of the lambs it was yeah absolutely awesome so i would have been in my second year of college i had already read so i read uh red dragon i got it out from the library mm. uh when i was about probably about 16 something like that because I love Blake and I recognise the dragon on the cover. It is a brilliant and it is, even though I was, you know, very young, it is like crack, that book. It's utterly compelling and it just zooms along. Uh, and then I discovered there was another book and I had to go on a waiting list and get it. I remember the big hardback with the, the woman's hand on the front with the moth, the, the yes. cover. And, yes. yes. And I got it in a chunky plastic covered hardback and you could only have it out for two weeks because it was so in demand. And so uh, I was, uh, I really remember that. So I was very excited, very excited to see the film. And I too used to, I used to set on long play record to get cinema attractions in the middle of the night. But also they had a special, um, they had a thing on uh, one of the, the cultural, it didn't used to be called Newsnight. It was the arts, the cultural arts program they used to have on BBC two. Yes. And they had something on there about Thomas Harris and they talked about Hannibal Lecter and they had some, I don't know, resting actor uh, reading in his, you know, his lines from the film. And then they, they had a bit about the film coming out. And then I remember not long after that, they had a, a film, Barry Norman's film special about it. And I can remember that's when I first saw, you know, the featurette with Jodie Foster talking about it and how she said it was going to be like the hero's journey and you learn the samurai and you learn this. So, yes, I was very excited to see it. And I, uh, I... I had uh, tickets for opening day in the afternoon and skipped from college. And I took a friend who was 16 and she was also a fan of the book. So I was like, yeah, they won't, they won't stop two bespectacled bookish sort of bookish ladies who are desperate to see a serious serial killer. Not exactly rock and roll. No, we'd like to see this serious uh, drama, please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the two of us in the coach, don't pay attention. <laughs> was that how it was seen widely at the time? I mean, because obviously it's, you know, it's fairly special in terms of uh, not just the Oscar suite, but being a, a film that, well, both a drama and a genre film, a more particular genre film to have done that. So what, at the time, obviously, was it was it perceived as here is an important film that's dealing with serious topics, or was it seen as... It was seen as prestige. Yeah, I remember it being presented as, as prestige, as opposed to oh god, here comes you know, here comes a trashy. There was no. Um, well, there were no trashy in those days, were they? Well, I mean, it's well, there, there were. Well, there were. There, yeah, there were. No, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. It's kind of like it's it, it it felt like just sort of spending that kind of money on a film on this kind of a subject matter. It was like we weren't there yet. Yeah. This was this was films like this that kicked that off. Definitely. Definitely presented as very prestige. Very, I mean, the early '90s did start to have that that sense of, of serious horror. So you think I think about because Jacob's Ladder came out, didn't it, the year before, and yeah. that was presented as something slightly God, before slightly different. Wow. And and in that sort of 
serious kind of uh, no no longer thinking of horror as this kind of throwaway you know stupid thing that you 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 know the video nasty stuff and and positioning more of prestige and and I, I do think so I think it was definitely moving in that direction uh, I mean Angel Heart is another example isn't it of, of something that could easily be seen as schlock you know if it had been made five ten years earlier but it, it, it was presented as a more serious thing yeah, no, indeed, that's right. It's interesting, actually, because I said thriller earlier. And this is, I mean, this is a horror film, but it's one of those things now where people on Twitter will just get into the biggest arguments about how The Silence of the Lambs isn't a horror film. It, I think it's because the aesthetic of the film has been so absorbed into procedurals on TV and stuff that it's like the what once seemed horrifying to us at the time, because it was a horrifying film, it was absolutely terrifying to watch. Now is what was original has now become safe and a bit of a cliche. But this was prestige film, kind of like you know, The Exorcist or something like that. And it had been at number one in the US box office for five weeks. So it really came here on a wave of acclaim and everyone was talking about it and it has to be said, Hannibal Lecter sold the film i mean it's one of these things where it's well i think anthony hopkins as well so yes that's right yeah but i do think as well we shouldn't underestimate that it also came in on the back or around the same time didn't it as what had ended up being one of the biggest um surprises and tv events in british history which was prime suspect so i was gonna say prime uh, suspect was yeah absolutely what prime suspect did to the television landscape in this country was huge and it was completely unexpected I think that people were ready. I think that's why it became such a huge success in this country, especially. I think you had Anthony Hopkins in this kind of showy role, but also the fact that everybody was very primed for a serious police procedural with kind of horror and gothic aspects to it with a female lead. And so, you know, it was it was all, whether it was, I'm sure, I feel like it, they either were around the same time or Prime Suspect was before, but there was a real symbiosis between the two things. I think it was 91 because it was the same year as GBH, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was definitely around that time, that's right. Yeah, and there are so many things that this film did that were just unusual for the time. The fact that it is female-led, which often gets forgotten because everyone remembers Hannibal Lecter, but Clarice Starling is such a brilliant character as well, Um, and Jodie Foster is just so great. Well, she's so unusual, isn't she? She has agency, she has a backstory, she has... I mean, you're hard-pressed even now, really, to have a female lead that is the heroic lead who gets to go down into the, the depths of Stiggy and Hell and save the girl who has as much depth and agency and is never kind of fetishized. And it's a, it is an incredibly important film in that aspect. It's a shame there's, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into the other problematic elements with it, but it, it shouldn't be underestimated that there's still, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's not many other films of that prestige with a female central hero that I can remember. But also, but her journey is one of a, a professionalism, isn't yeah. it? I mean, obviously it, it turns on the key of Lecter sort of like understanding Clarice and sort of like her, her, her emotional core, but fundamentally she's a professional yeah. and that's what enables her to do it. She's, it doesn't turn on a, a hysteria scene, does it? Yeah. it doesn't, there's, there's no element of like, oh, here's the romance that is her real life. Yeah. It is, yeah, she's, yeah, and also she's as capable of, as anyone else. She does it by not being a man for a start, because she has a certain empathy, which some of the, yeah. the men in it are lacking, because she is she's always humanising the victims, and in the end, it's the victims that let them find the killer. But also, she doesn't have a special tortured gift like Will Graham. She's not 
mm. at any point in danger of you know sympathizing so much with that which she hunts that she'll become it's, it's a very interesting positioning and she gets there by just hard work she's you know i really like that about her jodie foster's performance i think is characterized by bringing this kind of hard-working intelligence um to clarice you can always see her thinking and trying and working and i i like i mean she has I would argue she's an intellectual rather than an emotional actress, anyway. But it really works for Clarice. Mm, definitely, yeah, I mean, Foster. I, I guess I guess Jodie Foster would have been, and again, this is my kind of looking back at it, um, would have been at the time kind of the much more bankable actor compared to Hopkins. I mean, Hopkins, you know, was kind of seen as the cameo, almost the cameo role because she'd won, uh, she'd previously won an Oscar for the, the Accused. That would have been what three years before. Yeah, she came off the Accused, didn't yeah. she? And whereas Hopkins, I don't think, had done anything massive for a, for a number of years i know that he'd sort of i think he'd done desperate again desperate hours a few years before obviously he'd been in the bounty the and but like the elephant man was 13 years ago i think 13 years ago before this i remember him being in a tv series before i think i'd seen him in a tv series just before and it was kind of like it was one of those kind of like american miniseries things so he was kind of like on the outs it was almost like oh we got him cheap we can get him in well, that's really interesting because the because that's also the same for Jodie Foster. So she wasn't the first choice. Um, it was Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Denny wanted her. And Jodie Foster tried to buy the rights to the book, but found out that Gene Hackman had them. Yeah. Um, Gene and, Hackman has everything. Yes. <laughs> and of course, he then except famously that. gave... Except a good final film in his filmography. Yes, it's um, a welcome to Mooseport, isn't it? And he just quietly retired after it. But he gave the rights away because he said that Mississippi Burning was such a dark film and this was going to be a darker film and he just didn't have it in him. Didn't do it, could he? To make that film. Michelle Pfeiffer ultimately turned it down for the same reason. And it was Jodie Foster really, really pitched hard to get the role. And she thought that the Oscar might kind of help her. But if you look at, at her filmography during the 80s, it's not great and it's um so you've got things like carney um and foxes yeah and hotel new hampshire hotel new hampshire was was, um 84 but that's a supporting role and she's what's the one with uh dennis hopper um catch fire yeah which was awful but so many of these films uh so carney and mesmerized where she is a young bride to john lithgow who was also up for the role of Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. Yes, Brian Dennehy was, wasn't he, as well? That's right. He, he recommended, uh, who we'll talk about later, we'll talk about Brian Cox later, but apparently Dennehy recommended Brian Cox. It was his his suggestion, which, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. everyone needs a friend like Brian Dennehy. Absolutely. Right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he did go on to play a serial killer, didn't he? He played uh, John Wayne Gacy in, in very disturbing that, TV I movie. He's that. Great, it's yeah. great, and he is very disturbing bit. It was a miniseries, yeah, wasn't miniseries, it? Yeah, miniseries, that's Maybe, right. It was that, what was the Bundy one called? Perfect Beautiful Stranger or some such? It was called it a Perfect a, Stranger. Yeah. Perfect Stranger. That wonderful BBC summer of serial killer yeah. miniseries. <laughs> the Brian Dennehy, John Wayne Gacy was called To Catch a Killer. Ah, there you go. Ah, right, okay. Ah, is there any cliche finer than to catch, <laughs> set a killer to catch a killer? Well, so many of the Jodie Foster films during the 80s, uh, so Carney and Mesmerised, Five Corners, in which she plays yeah. someone who was narrowly avoided a rape by John Turturro. He comes out of prison and tries to rape her again. Um, and Catchfire are all films in which she is being pursued by, or is in clutches of, an older man who is trying to have his way with her. Mm. These are the roles that she was getting during the 80s, and, and the films were not doing that much. There is that kind of well-worn, unfortunate sort of path and trope for child actresses 
that they do tend to have a history of quite exploitational roles and film. And it is interesting to see her grab on to Silence of the Lambs and her career pivots from that point, almost 90 degrees. She does pretty much from that point play characters with agency or strength or do you know what I mean? It is interesting. You can really see it. Absolutely. I mean, she is exceptional in, in Silence of Lambs, even though she's not quite clear. I was, as a fan of the book, I was, she's not quite Clarice from the book. In what way, sorry? She's just, I mean, she's much more intellectual, which is very good, because there is a cleverness to Clarice. But in in the book, she is much more, I feel like in the book, she seems older and more worldly. Whereas I think I've spoken about this before. I feel like Foster leans deliberately into skewing Clarice slightly younger and more studenty, which helps for all of the romance or all of the things that people read into her relationship with Lecter, I do think it helps balance it because it makes it slightly less icky. That kind of it is, it still feels like a sort of twisted teacher, student, mentor, you know, kind of apprentice kind of thing. So I think she does imbue Clarice with a kind of very youthful and very young energy and intellectual energy. She seems kind of everything is filtered through her intellect. And in the book, Clarice is, is not quite the same as that. She's a bit more worldly and she's a bit more aware of her power I mean it makes the exchanges where he says do you not feel people's eyes move across you and you're aware of the power you have when he has that about covetedness when you covet something you see every day it has a bit more of a resonance because you you realize through reading that Clarice is is the reason they send her to lecture she's incredibly attractive she is all these things that would let her lure him in she's very vulnerable in some way she's very beautiful and she's very clever and she's very ambitious and so all of those things are in there um, and she's also a redhead, obviously, so, <laughs> in the book. <laughs> Which does matter. <laughs> I'm guessing her psych profile that she'd have to do in order to gain access to the FBI wouldn't go quite so deep as having the actual lamb story in there. No. So Crawford hasn't literally skimmed that and been like, well, that's a good one. No, we'll just throw that yeah. out. And let <laughs> but then her character's interesting because that is a brilliant bit of way, uh, a way of showing us that she is there to save innocence regardless. Even if it's futile, she will try and save those who, who truly need to be helped. And I really like that she is not focused on anything other than the victim. She's not all the kind of other characters in it want something. They want, you know, they have ambition or Crawford is kind of this father figure, but he's also using her horribly to get his own way in the same mm. way that he manipulates and uses with Will Graham atrociously to get what he wants with his ambition. And Lecter has all And she just wants to save that is her motivation she wants to save well isn't that that's one of the weird and wonderful things about this film and the story isn't it i mean Mm. it's got such a great title i mean the silence of the lambs it it makes no sense as a title until you get to the end of the story it isn't like manhunter or (laughs) it doesn't have those the striking blood of like red dragon it is literally that's it's about someone looking for peace wherever they can find it even if it's momentary it's a wonderful title for that yeah it's fantastic actually talking about did you see the little girl who lives down the lane yes yes yeah wasn't that great wasn't she great yeah she's i mean she's fantastic i mean even you know even in something as sort of broad as bugsy malone she just brings a different kind of she is fantastic she was just a fantastic and still is a fantastic actress. I watched Mauritanian this weekend. Yes. And she, you're reminded again of how fantastic she is because she's barely doing any lifting in that film. And she literally is the most laid back performance ever. And yet she is riveting whenever she's on screen to the point where Paul Benedict Cumberbatch, who is, is completely encumbered by the world's worst Southern accent, and he's <laughs> crippled 
but you can literally see the scaffolding of the acting he's trying to do <laughs> when he sings with Jodie Foster, and she's just literally just embodying the character. It's brilliant. Do you remember when she shows up in a very long engagement? Yes. And you can't yes. figure yes. out what the hell she's doing. Yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sarah, your point about the fact that this was the film, I mean, even more than The Accused, because after The Accused, she was doing Catch Fire, the Dennis Hopper film, which is yeah. just rubbish. Mm-hmm. This really? was the film that you're right, that you can see after this, she was on to Summersby and to Maverick mm. and to Contact and to Anna and the King. So what you think of as Jodie Foster and her career really starts with this film. And you kind of look at it and think, yeah, she's always been brilliant, as in she has a brilliant mind. And you can kind of see Hollywood just just not knowing what to do with her. And it's like, well, she's kind of cute, so we'll put her in these sort of films. And it's like, well, this is someone who, in Taxi Driver, at the age of 13, played a 12-year-old prostitute. And the child psychologist on set said, she's fine. (laughs) She's actually quite an amazing mind. To the point where, when Taxi Driver went to Cannes, she did the translation into French for all the French journalists yeah. of all the answers when she was about know, 13 or 14. So she's brilliant. But this was a film, I think, that it was like that just gave her the role that she was looking for. So you can see why she really, really gunned hard for it. Absolutely. I, I don't think it would be the same either without her. I think as much as I would love to have seen Michelle Pfeiffer and that, just to see what she would, would be like, really, when you, you think about that kind of peak season uh, Pfeiffer, there's a kind of extraordinary period of time where where she does, I mean, she does Marriage to the Mob, she does Dangerous Liaison, she does um, Batman Baker Returns, mm. you know, all, all of those things. And I would have been interested to see it, but I think it would have been a very different performance. I think it would have been a very different film. And I think that sense of the hero's journey, as it is normally applied to a male character, is very much brought to it by Jodie Foster. I think she really does carry the, the banner for that in, in the film. Yeah, no doubt. And the film really plays to the fact that she is a small person. Um, Mm. And the autopsy scene when she goes in and all the policemen are standing and they're very, very tall around her. And she, Jodie Foster mentions it on the audio commentary. This was the one time that Clarice really leans into her accent because she has like a West Virginian Appalachian accent. And she really leans into it to get them to leave the room so that they can give some dignity to the body there. Excuse me, gentlemen, you officers and gentlemen, listen here now. Uh, there's things we need to do for her. I know that y'all brought her this far and that her folks would thank you if they could for your for your kindness and your sensitivity. And now please, go on now, let us take care of her. Go on now. Thank you. She invokes all of their mothers and their grandmothers and... and puts them in a com- in a space that they feel comfortable being told what to do by a woman, whereas until yeah. that point they wouldn't be. And I think there is a lot of that in the film, with her positioning herself in a way that makes the men in the film comfortable with her, in a way that's not sexualised. It's very interesting. And I was thinking a lot about how she is in that film, and she's almost always many-layered in clothes, and it's a, it's a very interesting performance and the way she's presented, definitely. I mean, it also goes back to Thomas Harris and the brilliance of his book that he yeah. was confident enough to write a thriller or yeah, it was a horror, but it was sold as this great thriller. And it's got this female lead that yeah, hasn't got a love interest. And there's yeah. no scene where she's in bed. And for a book during the 80s, that's like a genre book. It's like, well, where's the sex scene? Actually, there is actually. She's well, there is at the end, isn't there? Where she's very a adults yeah. and she's in, you know, you can't, but you can't quite tell if she is with the, I think, the guy from the... From, Pilger. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that really shines through going back to the going back to the novel is the research and the sort of fidelity that Thomas Harris is aiming for in terms of, you know, he's obviously I think he's spoken to Johnny Douglas who wrote Mindhunter and basically you know, was one of the pioneers of the uh, behavioral science unit at Quantico. I, 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 I think I talked about this with Rob a little while ago. Does anybody else remember the joke from the uh, the movie The Guard where Don Cheadle's character from the FBI, when, he turn, when he's in Ireland, and every time he turns up, they ask him if he's with the behavioral science unit? <laughs> <laughs> Because it's, because it's become such such a recognised. I mean, like, you, I don't think anybody could name any other unit from the FBI. I think off the back of Science of the Lambs and off the back of that sort of era of fiction, it's become so recognised. And one of the things that yeah, I love about sorry. Um, well, you, you, sorry, Sarah, you go. Well, I was just going to say, which is, I mean, there is a very good podcast I recommend. I don't know if any of you listen to You're Wrong About, which is an excellent podcast I recommend. But they, uh, Sarah Marshall, who has a, a podcast, which is Why Are Dads? And she talks a bit about the, the Silence of the Lambs for her is what she calls copaganda, but it is perfect copaganda. Yeah. She talks a bit about the FBI and that. And I, I think there is, I mean, it, it's so good in that, but it is that thing of, that the FBI are the kind of brilliant geniuses. Like they are, you know, the behavioral science people are all amazing. And even though it's not actually a science, <laughs> you can't actually <laughs> prove that you know what others are thinking just by looking at some pictures and thinking really hard. Um, and I, I do think that that kind of this idea of, especially in silence, Lecter is, becomes this such a sort of superheroic, you know, villain. It almost elevates, well, the FBI are almost superheroes themselves. I mean, and then almost the Avengers. And you're like, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Do you they remember are that? Law enforcement officers. Do you remember that line from the Hannibal TV series where, um, is it Price and, oh God, I can't remember the name of the one who's not Beverly. And um, they just say, uh, oh, no, 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 no. The Price, And they actually go and say, wait, are we going to be studying the evidence now? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've missed doing that. That would be good. We, yeah. we should do that. That's fun. Well, that was the reason why the FBI were very open in terms of the assistance. Zella, they... it was Zella, Rob, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, they were, weren't they? Because they saw this as a recruitment tool uh, for women. Because John Douglas says on the 1994 audio commentary that one in twelve of their profilers was a woman, and kind of says it as a. Yeah, that's not very good, is it? So, yeah. um, because again, this was like the FBI had been around for decades by this point and was seen as the G-man. They were, it was a very, very male thing. Well, they're also the G-man. Is a bit, I mean, you only have to look at the Iron Giant, which, of course, we always have to go back to the Iron Giant. <laughs> but um, the G-man was kind of a joke, you know, for the kind of beatniks, uh, hey, daddy, yeah, let's, you know, we're not going to listen to the G-man because he's a square. And it is interesting. You look at um, Silence of Lambs and, and I, you know, the propaganda of, of the brilliance of the FBI and then that becomes a through line when you look at the whole genre so you look at the forensic scientists and you look at you know the whole way the serial killer genre blooms and grows you can see that even then it even carries through to uh, the X-Files and you have Mulder and Scully who literally are you know outside of everything stopping us being invaded by aliens <laughs> because they're <laughs> such spectacular agents or, or at least Scully's doing all the heavy lifting and Mulder's off being whatever he is somewhere. And, and that's really interesting. And so when you go back to the text, go back to Thomas Harris's books, and both of his heroic characters are outside of the FBI. So Will Graham is on the outside, and he's a special advisor anyway, and he, he doesn't want to be in it, and they make use of him like a special weapon that they don't care if they break. And Clarice is not yet qualified. So there's a really interesting 
kind of duality with that in the books that sometimes I think gets forgotten that she is she's not actually when he even says to her you're not a real FBI are you you know when, when he gives she shows the pass at the beginning so that I find that really interesting that it's become this sort of juggernaut of yes look at this everyone join along we're like hang on a minute she's not actually even in the FBI and then you look subsequently how she's treated it's not a very good advert for them <laughs> Yeah, that's part of the theme for the third book, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. It's basically every single institution and structure is inherently corrupt. And sexist. Yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. It's all of the worst people in the world. And the only people you can possibly trust in these institutions are senile and dying anyway. So, yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, and you can't trust the writer on the third book, but we'll get on to that next time. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> that's a really good point but but the thing about the x-files is i mean the x-files just lifted wholesale the look of the silence of the lambs right down to the very kind of plain font typeface to say where you were and things like that and scully being a well, and she is the in joke i mean she is you know this is i said to we'll get into when bedelia when she turns up as hannibal lecter's therapist in hannibal and i think he died like of joy and laughter as I always feel anyway about Gillian Anderson, because yeah. it's the, the most meta of in-jokes, because Scully was based on Clarice. Yeah. And Chris Carter was such a huge fan of Clarice Starling, and he loved um, Silence of the Lambs. And basically, he lifted her wholesale for the X-Files, because he, he wanted her to be more like she was in the book. And so that, I mean, that's what Scully's a redhead. He also used it as an example to pitch to Fox, which must have been quite a job, that you could have a tentpole detective series that did not have the female character mysteriously falling out of her clothes or um, apart from obviously appearing in her underwear in the pilot, but we'll gloss over that. (laughs) But she didn't have to be your stereotypical, you know, uh, underwear model wearing a police badge. And and he directly referenced Clarice Starling to get, so without, without Silence of the Lambs, we wouldn't have the X-Files basically. Yeah, it's really interesting. Cause, um, again, not to touch too much on the Bedelia character here, mm. because she also is, you know, given a, re- a romantic relationship with Hannibal in the way that you know the way that Clarice is at the end of Hannibal. Yeah. So you get the payoff to that relationship without having to betray the character of Clarice. Yeah. Yes. I feel like we're going to have a big old argument about this when it comes around when we have that Hannibal discussion. Oh, we are. Yeah. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> because if you're of the opinion that you were in 2000, Ian, then that's where I remember when. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, you came to this then, presumably, around 2004 or five. What was the film when you came to watch it? Um, I'm trying to figure out. I don't think I had it on VHS. I think the first 18 I ever watched, and I need, I'm not entirely sure what it is, was probably The Untouchables. Uh... That was a 15. Is that a 15? No, no, Is that a 15? Blimey. Because I'm, I'm desperately trying to think what my first 18 was, because it would have been a VHS. So I'm kind of I'm mentally trying to troll through the uh, troll through the archives. Um, Robocop. No, it would have been Robocop. I was going to say Robocop, yeah. Uh, or Robocop's a strong guess. Terminator. Robocop or Predator, but... Terminator, yeah. Actually, do you know what? It probably would have been Terminator. But I, I, that would have been a DVD by that point. Yeah. But yeah, no, Science was definitely a DVD watch. When was the Red Dragon movie released? Red Dragon was 2002. 2002. Yeah. So it's almost possible that I watched Silence of the Lambs off the back of watching Red Dragon or wow. because they were releasing Red Dragon. Yeah. Well, that's because the amazing ending to Red Dragon. <laughs> you have to watch the next one. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Wait, they've, they've already released the sequel? <laughs> so efficient. <laughs> so I was very lucky that I, I saw Manhunter on 
VHS before I saw Silence of the Lambs. So that was a right. friend of mine. Uh, he and I bunking off college to uh, go and watch it, having read Red Dragon. I didn't actually realise there was a film adaptation. I think it, was, it might have been issue two of Empire. I'm trying to remember if it's because it's, it's not issue one. So I used to have all the Empires from the beginning. I think it was issue two. And they gave it five star. They gave it red five stars. Uh, and they mentioned that it was an adaptation of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon. And I was like, oh, my God, I must see it. And so then I remember seeing it on VHS and, and renting it and just going crazy. I love Manhunter and immediately going and getting the, the soundtrack on, on tape. So <laughs> I couldn't afford a CD. And, uh, a, even now, it's a fantastic soundtrack. Yeah, you sent me off looking for it. I couldn't find it on Spotify, but it's like, um, yeah, that that is an interesting pop soundtrack, isn't well, it? Well, it's, it's, it's like, it's crazy, you know, alternative electronica and rock and prog rock. It's it's a, a, I mean, it's very Michael Mann, really. If you've seen, if you've seen The Keep, you know that he likes. I was going to say The Keep, yeah. He likes yeah, Tangerine, like Tangerine Dream, Dream, yeah, and he likes weird <laughs> visuals, so. But, uh, and he obviously likes uh, previously thought unadaptable books because F. Paul Wilson's Preparman Jack novels, which the, the Keep is the first one of, have always been like the holy grail of, uh, of film adaptations for a long And everyone's kind of shuffled close to them and gone, no, no, fuck that, that's too hard. <laughs> the Keep. Oh, Sarah, gets, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Tell, it, me, tell me, so it's, it, the, the Keep was based on a novel series? Yes, so The Keep is originally was released as The Keep, but it's actually part of the, uh, so F. Paul Wilson's Repairman Jack novels, oh, which. I don't know. Yeah. Which are very, I mean, and they have been ripped off quite a bit. They're very, I've read them all. <sighs> I mean, he is he is a Republican and they do, as he gets older, he does get really quite fascist, which is a shame. But the early ones are fantastic and very strange and very interesting and have been massively influential. While never, unfortunately, I mean, making it to the screen. When I was within fingertip touching distance of having some sway in my job at Sky when I went to Sky Arts and we were looking at different things of trying to get HBO to commission certain stuff I always would have right you want to do the Abhorsen books by Garth Nix you want yes. to do anything by Connie Willis and oh. you want to do F. Paul Wilson you know they used to be my kind of regular you could try these kind of thing <laughs> God I would have loved I would have killed to have seen an adaptation of the Abhorsen series but I agree with you when I was still at Sky one of my friends who was quite instrumental in getting Game of Thrones to, to be such a big hit Asked me what I think the next, what would have been a good one to carry on with if they were going to do adaptations. And I was immediately like, please, please do these. Please do these. They would be perfect. Anyway, we could digress into books that should be made into into films and TV. But let's get back to ones that have actually been made, made into films. <laughs> <laughs> like, bring it back round. Bring it around. No, I was thinking, you know what? I'm not going to try and wrangle this one because it's quite interesting. I don't think much of that's going to stay in the episode. No, no. I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> Sarah, the trick is to make reference to it later in the episode so we can't cut it. <laughs> Rob, that's the magic word. <laughs> that's the spell. On that note, though, one of the things that you said, Sarah, was um, Thomas Harris is... Is it that he, he is to serial killers what Peter Benchley is to sharks? That's right, yeah. So tell us about that. <laughs> well, in the, the, Benchley had his big hit, Big Fish book, which he never... In fact, just like Harris, he never did the sales of the book... 
uh, you would think, to make his career. But the the sales of it for an adaptation were what allowed him to carry on and become a professional writer. Exactly the same thing happened with um, Thomas Harris in that he sold the rights, the film rights to Black Sunday. And that's what allowed him to stop being a very, apparently a very, very good um, crime reporter in New York. And he apparently was especially good at police procedural and the mutiny of kind of, of crime investigation. But he sold the film rights. So he's always been entwined with adaptations of his work to screen because initially he had more success financially from that than he did from uh from sales of his books and now i'm sure i'm sure when this goes on we'll get slammed by rabbit i don't know if he has rabbit does harris have rabbit fans who will spam me forever on twitter who knows but <laughs> well he does like one book a decade so well he is he's he better have a backup like the last three isn't it um isn't it stephen king who said about him that he's he hates writing that he he finds it absolutely painful and yeah I think yeah Stephen King yeah. he said uh, he said he's like, all writers find writing tedious but Harris writing for him is like writhing on the floor in agonies of frustration the very act of writing is a torment to him and Harris describes writing almost as like a passive activity that he waits for the characters to kind of you know go to work for him he can't write unless they're sort of present and and i know he is meticulous and labyrinthine in his research i mean that's that's the thing that's what makes him very interesting when we get to the later books I, I my theory that when you read hannibal you can literally read when silence of the lambs became a big hit you can feel the change in the book as he's do you really think it. so yes. I can't, yeah but let's hold on to that for next time because that's <laughs> But that Hannibal discussion is going to be a very, very big one. It's interesting that because I thought when you said that about serial killers, that you meant that Harris's depiction of serial killers is kind of as unrealistic a depiction of serial killers as a shark oh, is in Jaws. Absolutely as well. I mean, it makes me sound very clever. So yes. And um, <laughs> but, that, but that is also true, isn't it? Because until you think about until really, and he wrote Red Dragon, you would read about serial killers like, Ed Gain um, and, you know, John Wayne Gacy and people, you would read about them in kind of Tatler-like broadsheet tabloids or breathless kind of true crime sections and re- really on these sickos who killed their mother and ate them or, they're, you know, it really did. He really did set the pattern of the superhero-like or supernatural-like ability of the serial killers, this grand guignol design that they believe they all are and this terrible, you know, tortured background. It then... They're the bits of it that kind of got stripped out. His version of the super, super duper, super serial killer. Yeah, and I think I think that's true. I think he does. I mean, you, you think about that. Hannibal Lecter has become a, a horror movie creature, and as you know, as recognisable and as big as, as something like the Alien or the Predator, or you know, or Dracula. Said, yeah, or Dracula. It's, I mean, he he is in that pantheon. It's interesting that because during the eighties, there was just a fascination with serial killers. Yeah. seemed to catch like a bit of a, a mood in people just wanting to know about that. And Silence of Lambs and Red Dragon, it was like, did kind of elevate that into they're doing it because they seem to be operating on like another psychic plane to ordinary people. So they're doing these awful things because of it. And that just really fed into movies. So then you get the evil geniuses and everything is, you know, as you said, has a grand design around it. Yeah, it kind of elevates this is instead of them being these figures to be pitied, they're almost admirable. They're more these incredibly intelligent. I mean, it's it's important to remember that Hannibal Lecter is particularly in Red Dragon, and he's absolutely in that pantheon of a satire of wealthy, cultured snob kind of academia, which was endemic in a lot of a lot of the eighties. The idea of that elitist, he does represent that, and that person, that kind of person to be mocked for the the kind of oh the fine wine and the very intellectual. I mean. 
that's still, I think, in America is something that can be satire. That, that sort of, what we've discussed before, it's like Dr. Fraser Crane is exactly Hannibal Lecter. He just doesn't kill people. I mean, it's a, it is a character that is enduring as a, as a form of satire. Well, look, you know, look how clever and special they are. You know, we, we, underneath we know there's a dark heart. That can't possibly, possibly be true. There must be, they must be up to something. Well, yeah, so I think one of the reasons that Hannibal Lecter endures is unlike most sort of serial killer figures, whether real or sort of imagined, they you know there is a degree of real ugliness and sort of sickness to what they do. Whereas Hannibal Lecter is, in the oddest way, almost an aspirational serial killer. He's yeah. so sophisticated and so knowledgeable and so intelligent and so in control that... He's like a dark shadow that we all would like to be because he is, he's never flustered. He's always the smartest guy in the room. He acts the way that you would like to think you would act under pressure. So, yeah, if you can just forget his few bad meals, he's actually quite a... Uh... He's also equal opportunity, isn't he? I think I've said that before, that it's interesting when you look at his kills, I mean, especially in the books, that it's really only the nurse that he attacks when she, you know, an opportunistic attack, which then points to his hidden bestial nature. But... A lot of these victims are male. I mean, he's. This is, you know, unfortunately, the the in this kind of genre gets a bit much as a woman because it is en- an endless parade of ripped and tortured women. Endlessly mm. is the focus of the violence. And what's quite refreshing about Hannibal Lecter is that he kills an awful lot of men um, as well. I mean, he is quite equal opportunity uh, <laughs> for that. But that, and that's quite interesting. It's almost. I mean, you know, he, he is offended by stupidity or, or you know little niggling things that annoy us all except that we don't then kill those people and turn them into a delicious several course meal so well, at least not as far as I'm, i know i mean i could but i, I obviously wouldn't so i know how but <laughs> only, only for my chef's training not because i'm a serial killer apparently um thomas harris i think was uh, chef trained as well i think he's called on bleu yeah he, he studied at Le cordon bleu he's a huge huge foodie massively so which is quite interesting too so i think that's i think where um anthony hopkins based his some of his performance because he's also a southern gentleman isn't he with a very particular way of speaking and very particular southern manners and i think that anthony hopkins kind of stole a bit of that as and, and by way of Catherine hepburn uh to put into lecter's performance which is so weird because he's meant to be a lithuanian well yeah <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Sarah, you're right. He is, uh, so Thomas Harris is Peter Benchley. He's also George Lucas in some ways as well, isn't he? Yeah, he is. (laughs) Get on to that as well. (laughs) The law of diminishing returns. One of the things that I thought when I was watching it this time was uh, it's an unusual film in that so much of it is composed of close-ups and extreme close-ups of faces. It's such a conscious decision to just have a close-up of the person's face. And it's it still looks quite unusual even now for that choice. And there's lots of talking to camera. So a lot of it is from Starling's point of view. So people are talking straight to camera. It's an interesting choice that Jonathan Demme made because he said that he loved the book. He just wanted to make a direct adaptation of the book and not add any directorial flourish to it. That is a flourish and it works really well because it is a gamble to have that much of your film just composed of close-ups and people looking to camera. Well, it's a... Yeah, it doesn't. No, Karen. No, I, I was just going to say, well, it's a talking film, isn't it? I mean, we, we talked about it before, is that you don't see an awful lot of the violence. You see people talking about the violence after it's happened. So there, there is a focus on the importance of the words and the importance of the dialogue. So it, it lends itself to that. It's one of the first walk and talks, isn't it? You can imagine it's kind of like an early scene for West Wing as well when they're 
being escorted through the, 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 the dungeons of the asylum. Yeah, and Harris is so... He, his prose is so textured and so dense and so much he's so underrated for his dialogue i mean he is so so good at building all the tension really out of his dialogue mm. um and and it's i think that's the other reason that silence alarms works so well is it, it it builds itself on his remarkable dialogue and also i i think that with silence of the lambs i think demi is also referencing a lot of classic cinema because I think about um, things like Jekyll and Hyde and I think about, um, the, you know, Frankenstein, the bride with the white head, that, you know, the four by three and the lighting and the black and white, that close up on faces, which some of it was prevaricated, wasn't it? By the way, they had to light for the makeup. But there is a bit of that in silence, I think, in the kind of tight close ups on faces that's, that's looking back to classic horror, I think. And, and almost um, La Belle and La Bette, the French uh, La Belle and La Bette with the looking mm. at the beast's face, looking at the bell. I was very much reminded of that when I saw, you know, with the way they filmed Clarice and Hannibal speaking, which would mm. make sense as well. So I think there is that stuff in there. I think there were some wonderful photographs, weren't there, as well, of uh, yeah. Hopkins in particular that kind of like do the Orfe thing with um, the distorted yeah. mirror reflections, don't they? They do. Um... They do. And also, let's not forget, because I, I meant to say at the time, um, Jonathan Demme also directed the incredible uh, music documentary, Stop Making Sense. Of course, and um, there's Psycho which, Killer right from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. But that utilises very far looked off, far shots, and very close up on singing faces. And so, weirdly, I think you can see how he can make Silence of the Lambs as well from that documentary. That's a great point, yeah. It is a dialogue-driven film. There is one stunt in this film. <laughs> can you remember what it is? Is it, does it involve the storage unit? No. Okay. It's not like, no, Jodie Foster did her own going across the assault course, didn't she? She did, that's right. And apparently was was as good on take 20 as on take one. So she's great. And is it, is it where, it's not where Jane Gum gets shot, is it? No, the stunt is when one of the SWAT team goes through the window at the end. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jonathan Demme on the audio commentary says, yeah, look at this, this big thriller that we made and uh, it's got one stunt in it and that's it. That guy just going through that window, that was a stuntman. That's a bit I remember from when I saw it at the cinema because, of course, you know that when you've read the book, you know that twist is coming. I remember sitting in the cinema knowing everyone else thinks this thing is going to happen and you just know the rug's going to be pulled out from underneath everyone's feet. I felt so proud of the film at that moment. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is so good. This is so much fun. And that went down a treat, that did. When he opens up the door and she's standing there, yeah. the entire audience was like, oh, no. <laughs> yes, including myself. But also, the um, because that's the thing, is that the film does things where you think, well, that's obviously what's going to happen, but it just doesn't occur to you because you're so into the movie. Like, mm. when Hannibal Lecter escapes, the shot of him on the floor with the face... I remember thinking at the time, that looks like Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. <laughs> but didn't put it together that it was. Because it was like, I just didn't think that they were going to do that. It completely took me by surprise when he sits up in the ambulance and whips off the face, even though I thought that looks like Hopkins. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just so That's well the done best line from the movie. Was it going, oh, you're looking great. You look great. Yeah, <laughs> that, that got a big laugh as well. <laughs> The film is about Clarice, and I mean, that's the interesting thing comparing it to Red Dragon or Manhunter is that um, Will Graham is a really interesting character, but the the book takes time to colour and shade in Francis Dolleride. And I do think that the, the one area maybe where, where silence suffers a bit is it doesn't do the same with Jane Gum. It doesn't 
I think there are, I'm going to have to talk uh, about some of the problems with silence alarms. Which is a perfect time to do, I think, because I think that you're in very well. So, yeah, go ahead. So, obviously, the film is hugely problematic and was at the time for the LGBT community or LGBTQ community, as it wasn't necessarily known then, um, there was worries at the time of it being very homophobic. But what it really is, is transphobic as well. There's, there are huge issues. And it's a very difficult um, situation because the film is so well written. There is so much to admire in it. And yet the kind of what Jane Gum is doing, which is killing women and taking off their skins and wearing them is, is almost like a kind of literal manifestation of the kind of insults that are thrown at trans women, of that you are just, you know, you're, you're taking rights away from women by doing this. You're, it, it's, it, I know there's a fantastic documentary on um, Netflix called um, Disclosure, which is all about the history of trans representation, and it, it speaks to it much more eloquently than I can, not being a trans person myself, but I, I've consulted with a lot of trans friends and Disclosure does talk a lot about the representation of Silence of the Lambs, because on the one hand, it is such a strong female performance from Jodie Foster, and they do make the point on screen when she is discussing it with Lecter that no, no, she said no, no, trans, transsexuals are passive. They are not, vi- that is, you know, they do say that. Our belly wants to change too. There's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexuals are very passive. Have a girl. You're so close to the way you're going to catch him. Do you realise that? But regrettably, there was a, a larger scene at John Hopkins University, which was cut from the film. And I know that some of the rest of us have discussed this as well. And I, I think on reflection, that should have been left in because it makes the point that the doctor involved does not want to give uh, information about those people who are beginning this journey uh, and have come to terms with the, the transsexualism and their trans journey. And it, it, he will not, the doctor will not give Crawford any information about these people because he respects their privacy. And also it, I, I felt that those scenes, the deleted scenes should have stayed in because they do, I wish it was spelled out more, but they do at least make the point that no, this, this person is not transsexual. These, this is not what this is. And I know that is reinforced a bit more in the book, I think the film is not as homophobic as the book is. I think that the film is does have a problem with its transphobic content, um, as, as much as I can talk about it anyway. But I think that there are much better people who should be listened to about it. And I'm hoping you'll link this for me in the podcast. So look at Netflix Disclosure. And if you um, look at the podcast by Sarah Marshall, which is um, it's called Why Are Dads? And they discuss uh, the silence of the lambs. Uh, with uh, Harmon Collegio, Collegio, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who is a trans woman and talks about it far more eloquently while also loving the film much better than I can. But my two penitents is that there is a problem that has to be acknowledged within the film while you can still respect all the other good points about it. No, it's definitely, that's a really, really good point well made, isn't it? I mean, for, for me, it's the same point you were making earlier about this isn't really about serial killers as they exist. This is about a strange kind of rarefied beast. And it's like, if you're going to be making a film about a serial killer, the law of averages would be, okay, you're going to be doing it about some misogynist horror show who kills women because he's raping and killing women. To put this into slightly more narratively quirky, well, this is his strange psychology, makes it perhaps more flouncy, but makes it so much more problematic. But then especially since you actually come down to the line, I mean, even when they're kind of like trying to qualify it by saying, no, 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 Buffalo Bill's not transsexual. It's like, 
doesn't that sound like every right wing scumbag? You know, you're not really a transsexual. Yeah. It's like, well, it's all but dead naming him. It, this whole sense of I do not accept the reality that you are living in. You're not transsexual. That's because is is that's because Lecter gets the line. Billy is not a real transsexual, but he thinks he is. He tries to be. He's tried to be a lot of things. I expect. Billy isn't a real transsexual, but he thinks he is. Fairly, he yeah, yeah. It's like, but surely that's, that's what every single yeah. Republican says. Yeah. And I know some of the trans community object to the, the even though it's good that she says it, Clary's saying, oh, you know, transsexuals are passive, instead passive. of then leading yeah. on with, and they do not have violent pathology. And I mean, now we would say, and they tend to be almost always the victims of violent crime in these scenarios rather than the perpetrators of it. Um, exactly that you know which is not to say that they are always a victim to violent crime because that's a narrative unfortunately like when you get into this genre you look at you know things like csi and you look at you look there you know the, the dead transsexual hooker sex worker you know which is very demeaning is is such a trope within the serial killer genre is very mm. frustrating but i do think i think it's interesting to look at the look at it at, at the time and and the allegations of homophobia because i think the book definitely has much more of that, and there is a kind of slightly hands-off. I, I wonder if that's one of the reasons that Harris did not want to delve into Jane's background in the same way he does Dolride, because it's a can of worms he didn't want to open. Um, but also, to be fair, because he is interested in Clarice's journey, so we get to see about her childhood. We essentially get to see what made her who she is, her trauma that doesn't make her a serial killer. If anything, it makes her the shining sword in the darkness, which is is interesting that she, you know, she has become that from her trauma as opposed to responding with violence. And it's interesting too, because obviously we know that Jodie Foster is gay and she was in the closet and she, I wonder how differently the film would have been received if at the time she had been able to come out and say, but I'm an openly gay woman in the lead of this film and I am, you know, it is about this and it is about that. There's a, there's a great podcast I listened to where somebody said, oh, they hope that in, in their version of what happens to Clarice, they, they think that they hope that she's in a nice lesbian relationship running an animal sanctuary that rescues, you know, lambs and other animals. Kind of, <laughs> kind of like that. That's what, you know, that kind of alternative that happens to Clarice. Because she's very, she's very queer coded. I think that's the other reason that it's problematic for the gay community because it has all these unpleasant parts of it, but it also has this kind of identifiable female lead. I personally identified her, with her a lot when I was a young lesbian and I could see things about that character because she is not sexualized in a way that reads heterosexual. She's just not sexualized at all, which is very, very interesting. And, make, you know, she shouldn't be because she's the protagonist. So Yeah. Could you tell us some of the ways that you think the book is homophobic? Well, it's got, um, I think some of the discussions about, um, you know, kind of Benjamin Raspail and, I mean, they do have uh, Lecter referred to Billy. And, I mean, the books in general have the language. I mean, even in, you see in um, Red Dragon, the whole tooth fairy's dislike of being called the tooth fairy and the whole do you think I'm queer and, and unfortunately that does thread through some of Harris's early work and you look at when Silence of the Lambs came out as a book in 88 that is right at the heart of the beginning of America's real fear of AIDS and homophobia so gay characters were normally weirdos killing people in a wig or or well mainly they are kind of weird demonized high-voiced effeminate characters and there's just a bit of that in there I think I think in the book a bit more it doesn't come across in the film in the same way I think that the film for me has more problems obviously with transphobia but it it almost um steps back from that Jamie's gay and he has a little dog I mean and there is that kind of effeminate quality to him that is coded as gay you know and he's got his painted nails and stuff and 
um, more than than as a trans thing, it is is painted as him being homosexual, uh, and that he you know he's had violent encounters, and and I th- that's I think that's my sort of my problem with it. And I think in a way, if Harris had, maybe if he'd have investigated it more, if he had gone into more of why this character was like he was, what was his violent pathology that happened when he was young, why you know what has caused him to be like he is, in a way even though it might have still been problematic because of how it would have been in the time that it was written. At least that, that kind of balances it, if you're going to do that character. Give it the same weight you gave Francis Dolleride. Show it all of it, though, you know? And I think mm. so it kind of comes up short for me. Yeah. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because that's one of the weird things about Dollarhide in the book, in, in that book. It, it goes to quite extreme lengths to humanise Dollarhide. Mm. Definitely. And I mean, it's in, in, in the fact that you don't see Dollarhide kill the families. Yeah. And so you, you kind of like you, you don't get to see him at his absolute worst. You do get to see all the, the, the layers of narrative that kind of like explain why he's become the way he is. I, I can imagine almost it's like I, I've done that before. I've done that story where I dig beneath the horror show and show the tragedy that brought out that person. I think Harris does that quite a lot in both of those novels. Like I'm, I'm, I'm quite grateful that there wasn't as much of it about gum. Yeah, no, I think I- in, the, in the second book. I think you're right. I mean, The Silence of the Lambs is a book written by a heterosexual man in 1988 after five years of research. And it's interesting because these are period pieces now. And the film, which was seen as so progressive when it came out, the fact that it had the scene where he says, where they address transsexualism, seemed to be progressive at the time, that they were taking the time to do that. Of course, yeah, you look at it now and think, we have evolved in 30 years and attitudes have shifted for the better. But yeah, it is a period piece, and and that makes me feel a bit old. But then again, it was like you know, thirty years also, ago. But it's also it started that com- started that conversation. I do beg your pardon, it's a stupid thing to say, but it did sort of like popularise that conversation. Yeah. If, it, if there hadn't been, for all its wrong steps, it was it then shone a light on that kind of lazy thinking. And but I think the problem with that is because it was such a huge. So Silence of the Lambs was such a huge pop culture zeitgeist to the point where it's still in the lexicon now and you still it's become so it was such a huge thing that depiction of Mm. the uh, not real not a real transsexual stealing you know that kind of wanting to rip off people's skin and steal it and trying to become a woman uh devaluing women that that had a huge power which has endured unfortunately and and unfortunately it is literally only very recently that there has started to be a shift in trans representation, which I think that I think that is the problem. I mean, it is a very good film. It's very well made. It does have that huge problem at the centre of it. And you can say, well, yes, Clarice is fantastic. It is a feminist retelling. That that also doesn't take away the problematic element. No, 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 no. Right. Book talks about it in terms of this this absence that that sort of that fills Jane Jane Gum. But again, that is also yeah. not a defence because it's like, then why is the absence filled with this? Like, why is this the way that you've chosen to tell this story? Other than it's interesting, isn't it? it, it he's definitely he's definitely a sociopath, I think, because he he's able to totally dehumanise. He's able to because it even describes, doesn't it, that um, the first girl he killed was his friend, and she they wrote each other letters when he had her down in the pit. And he, yeah. he, this was somebody he had a relationship with and he knew very well and was friends with. And yet he was able to look at what he wanted from her selfishly. And that was more important. And I think that's the difference between whether we've discussed it before, but I think that you would agree that, that Francis Dollaride is, is a psychopath. 
And you could argue, I think when Will Graham says that you drew a man with a freak on you, we freak on his back, not not a freak. I think that's a very true understanding of the Red Dragon and Francis Dolleride. I mean, he himself is as much attacked by the Red Dragon, isn't he, in his own narrative, as he attacks other people. Whereas James Gunn is, he's kind of abhorrent. I mean, he is aware of what he's doing at all times. So, you know, in a way you could put, he is far more in the same kind of sphere of psych of craziness as Lecter and that people are just a means to an end to him and he, they will help him achieve what he feels he needs to achieve and it's part of this kind of whole emptiness I mean I do I, I'm not sure whether somebody writing this now would write the same story I would hope not well, it's, that's a really I'm just thinking about it by then. So it's 30 years from Silence of the Lambs to now. And it would have been 30 years from Psycho to Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And it does feel like, oh, we're still treading that same territory. Yeah, aren't we, dress, with, uh, you know, dressed as his mother. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Killing women to replace them. The previous big Hollywood film I can think of that did something similar to Silence of the Lambs was Dressed to Kill, which was the Brian De Palma one, which is... Yeah, the same, you know, in the, in the wig. Yeah, that's a, that's a psycho rip-off. Yeah. I mean... It is psycho rip-off, but it's, I mean, but that film doesn't care what the killer is. It's like transvestite, transsexual, gay. But it's it, still part it, of the pattern it, of representation, which, you know... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It must be awful to Indeed, watch that definitely. as a young trans person and be like, oh, okay, well, here is my options. I... I I get to be either a victim or I get to be the killer, you know? Why am I, why am I not yeah. the hero? <laughs> kind of. And to be honest, like, well, I mean, yeah, in the 70s and 80s, it was like, you would be the villain. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And get, I mean, gay characters as well were, you know, the, we were either the depowered best friend or you were the, the crazy psycho. I mean, you know, uh, single white female, you know, you kind of, if you're a lesbian, you're either the obsessive kind of crazy or you're the the nice unthreatening friend or you're not well normally it would be the nice gay male friend you know so it's it is hugely problematic i mean uh, like a gay male friend only because they say that there's no evidence at no, all they, they have no, no life or no agency i mean you, you can't argue that we haven't learned that much because you look at uh, mindhunter and what does uh i can't remember her name the lesbian uh the woman who comes in late played by uh the australian actress oh played by anna Torv. Yes, Anna Torf, who I have sat next to at a funeral. But anyway, um, <laughs> there you go. You can't, you can't <laughs> skip over that story. You can't do that. <laughs> She's a, a Murdoch. She's a great niece or a granddaughter. I can't remember. Really? Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, something like that. I'm sure that's Anna Torf. But it, it, still, that character in, in Mindhunter, what agency? She gets, a, isn't it, this is the second scene, she gets to feed a cat. Basically, as her love. Those <laughs> scenes are terrifying, though, they aren't are, they? I mean, I, I was hoping <laughs> maybe more like, Oh, no. But this is, it, it does show still problems with not knowing quite what to do with, with female characters or anybody of any alternate sexuality. Um, well, Jonathan Groff's girlfriend in that first season of Mind uh, I was convinced that was in a figment of his imagination. Yeah. <laughs> and the dialogue. You're like, who talks like this? And then but that, that highlights how, for better or worse, how good Thomas Harris is at dialogue. He's so, so good. He's a really good yeah. writer that so much of it makes it into the film and the TV series. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I mean, they just lift and shift it completely. It's um, not an awful lot of repetition either. No. I mean, looking no. through it, it's like there's the, the bit about you love the Bureau, the Bureau doesn't love you. And there's a, there's a one or two lines, there's no room for pity at my table. And there's, But other than that, it's like he, he's treading new ground all the way through. And a wonderful way of expressing himself. It's so sort of like visual vocabulary, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Really smart. Plus, the characters all have different voices. Yeah, and authentically so. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love um, the thing about when they were filming Silence of the Lambs, that um, the whole sequence where Jodie Foster talks about what happened with the lambs when she was a child. They originally had uh, done a location shoot and they were ready to go and film on a farm and uh, they just did a bit of a test of the dialogue and did a locked off camera scene and she, like only the first or the second take that they did with her in the costume telling you what happened with Clarice and apparently Jonathan Demi just went, well, we don't need to go and film that. <laughs> kind of, just <laughs> yes. so powerful, simple yes. performance. And there's a lot of that in the film. Mm. I think that his line was, I guess we're not going to Montana then. Yeah, that's it, we're not going to Montana, yeah. Which is, you know. Because I've heard it's cold there, so cold. Yeah. <laughs> but then you watch the film and think, I can't believe that you ever thought about having, as he put it, a movie within a movie. Yeah. Because that was always going to be like a dream sequence where she would go to the um, into like, yeah, the barn, she would see what was happening, and the cowboy who was in charge of it would turn around and it would be Lecter. That was the plan for that scene. Oh, that would awful. And it was like, thank God that didn't happen. One, because all you need is that performance. And it is about the Jodie Foster character, not about, it's about her as a woman, not her as the kid. Yeah. And also that's a shit idea. So I'm really, really glad that you didn't do it. And you it, get everything but, um, you need to know about Clarice. You understand in that moment that she is, whatever happens, she is going to go into the labyrinth and fight the Minotaur. She is going to go and find the monster because that is who she is, and you, you get it in that, that story, basically. And she's really good at micro-expressions as an actress, isn't she? It's all there, but none of it's big and showy. It's every kind of tiny movement. I think that's the thing that's interesting about her and Anthony Hopkins. I think that they mirror so well is for all of his grand guignol, and he, he is already playing to the cheap seats a little bit, I think. You can tell he's having a whale of a time. But when you compare how broad it is in the later films compared to how tightly controlled in comparison... He is in Silence of the Lambs. And they, they're almost mirroring micro-expression. There's a kind of tightening of the eyes. There's a small kind mm. of movement in the cheek or the mouth. And you can see it. You can see them doing it. It's really interesting. And and I think I think it's interesting maybe in the in the different ways that they're doing it because I think she's like responding quite naturally as like a call and response, so like you know, maybe, maybe more ground and empathy. And but what he's doing, like so much of the stuff that he throws back at her, is deliberate. It's the mocking, it's the accent, yeah. it's the and to what extent? To you know, obviously she's there, as you say. It's really interesting in terms of how it portrays Clarice's professionalism, but then and how that contrasts with Lecter's sort of very just sort of personal sadism or the pleasure that he's taking from the, from this game i think it's a really interesting also the the sort of the contrast between the lectors in science of the lambs as played by hopkins and in manhunter as played by brian cox lector with a lector. k he's from lithuania don't you know but then he when you see him talking about the filming of that he said that he he did several this is brian cox several takes as lector and they always preferred the ones where he did less. So he found himself taking it down. And there is a simmering. I mean, I find his, I find that lecture terrifying. That is mm. the barely kind of hidden beast beneath, you know, talking about the shark, you can see the fin with him sometimes. You can really see the black eyes. You can, he is dangerous, even though, you know, he's speaking so jovially. I mean, I, I think I'd love Anthony Hopkins' performance in Science and Lambs, but for me, I think Brian Cox is closer to Hannibal Lecter of the book. There's an emptiness, isn't yeah. there? And that's, we, we've talked about it, when he kind of like finishes talking on the phone and suddenly it's like the animation goes out of his face because he is not performing to anybody. No, nobody means anything to him. And it's just that, that wonderful step back. I mean, I think they're both fantastic and I, I'm sure we'll talk about Mickelson as well. It's like there are three brilliant ways of playing a really 
really intelligently well sculpted character but with hopkins you've got a character who lives in a world where you keep people in a dungeon and it's like immediately you're into a completely different story yeah. whereas with with brian cox it's like no there is a room you can go to in a place that looks like any other place in the world and we've got the worst person alive in that room he is the unspeakable thing in the real world whereas Hopkins is the unspeakable thing in a bizarre kind of horror film. Yeah, but he, he's definitely so the creature in the basement, isn't he? He's the sort of... Yeah. That's why I always think that Silence of the Lambs, I think that Demi is definitely echoing old-fashioned horror films yes. and things like Cape Fear as well. I mean, I think that's all in there. Whereas the kind of bright modernism of Manhunter, I mean, it's, it's obviously it's uh, Michael Mann, shiny, straight off uh, the wet-look streets of Miami Vice kind of modernism. But it's still, as you say, shocking for that very austere but, but kind of boring could be could be an office building could be uh, a home for the insane you know it's the felt tip pens yeah, yeah. it's the fact yeah. he keeps he has felt tip pens it's like yes hopkins doesn't have felt tip pens he has charcoal sticks absolutely yeah. yes exquisite pastels but brian Cox said didn't he that he the way he played him so he he placed him on is it uh peter manuel who was a, a scottish killer he remembers him seeing him on the telly when he was young, who who killed several people and then shot someone, was apprehended, and he had a blankness to him. Mm. And he said he had no morals, and he, he felt that sanity is about boundaries, and if you remove the boundaries, you always become demonic. And he played him as an absence of empathy. He said he's sort of morally absent, and that's how he played him. Yeah, we did. We saw it similarly, didn't we? Because David Tennant was up for Hannibal, wasn't he, for the TV series? Uh, and yeah. he did something similar when he played Des last year, didn't he? That kind he of did. like. It's like, oh, just, of evil. Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. And he even got the same to... Uh, Dandruff and Bloodstains. Yeah, the, the purple guy in, what's his name, in um, oh, Kilgrave, okay. in uh, yeah. Jones. A similar, has all this power, but is instead kind of grubbly nasty and, and small scale. I love that small scale thing. That reminds me of something that we yeah. talked about when it was um, the idea of a psychopath is that they're braggarts. They're just... To the point of idiocy, making these preposterous lies and these ridiculous boasts that mean nothing. It's not to advance any great narrative. It's just they just lie because they're pathological, idiotic liars. Isn't it in um, Elementary where uh, Johnny Lee Miller playing his version of Sherlock says, oh, oh, serial killers, vile honestists, a lot of, you know, basically. (laughs) That's that's exact. And and when you consider that he has played. Uh, serial killer in Dexter. Oh, he was brilliant in Dexter. He was brilliant in Dexter. <laughs> He's, you know, when I saw him in, I saw him, I was very lucky enough to see him in Danny Boyle's Frankenstein. Um, uh-huh. He has that kind of, you know, the is it from Hamlet? He says, I have that in me, which is evil. He has that bubbling under the skin. And it's the same, I think, for Brian Cox's lector. I would be frightened to be in a room with that lector. I don't feel the same way. As, as much as they try and use it, it does work in Silence of the Lambs, but once he kind of gets onto other stuff, I mean, watching the kind of remake of Red Dragon, he lurches, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and you just a bit like, easy, granddad, you're going to do your hip, you know. <laughs> yes, it becomes ridiculous, doesn't Whereas it? Whereas you believe um, Brian Cox would fuck you up, basically. <laughs> well, it's interesting that, because he said that his lector was someone that you wouldn't be afraid to walk past in the street because you wouldn't notice him, whereas Anthony Hopkins' lector you would cross the road because he's clearly deranged. He <laughs> would draw your attention to a fine mural you see before you. <laughs> and that's the thing that I quite like about the Brian Cox lecture is that you can imagine him just being a bit dull. Like, yeah, you were going and telling him your problems. He'd be um, successful and nobody would, nobody would suspect. 
and no one would guess yeah but then when the mask drops you yeah you just see that there's just nothing there apart from this blank horrible ego that just wants to do things yeah definitely he he has that in there I think it's interesting that I think a lot of the a lot of the both I don't know if the books say explicitly, but I know it comes up in the series. The idea that Lecter just can't the one thing he can't deal with is being bored. Like he is pathological, but he's not. I mean, like that's one of the reasons Hannibal Rising doesn't work, is it? Because it normalizes him. It puts him in the realm of the mundane in a way that's just really. It's like you know, it's it's like most origin stories after the fact it ends up being a hiding to nothing because either it's something that is redundant because it doesn't add anything to the character or it's something that we already on some level know and so therefore that's why when it contrasts you know it contrasts red dragon or buffalo bill with lecter it's because what they do is somehow squalid there's like a twisted path need to do it whereas with lecter like you you get the feeling like the only reason he wouldn't stop doing it is because he'd be bored yeah well, he's caught, basically, because he's caught. He's he's not still doing what suits him. I think what I do remember getting a, a tiny thread of in the... I'm sure I get a hint of it in silence. I have to go... I mean, I've only just been rereading it. But I do feel that there was a hint that Lecter is almost seeding the serial killers, that he's helping them on, you know... There's a line, isn't there? Crawford says that he'd been seeing patients. Yeah. Who knows who he might have let, fun, let free just for fun? And I think if Lecter had not become this great kind of a simultaneous cash cow and albatross to Harris. I feel like that's the direction he maybe was going with it, which makes sense because it's the only thing that would have would have maybe kept that character interesting and let him write it as per the earlier books, as opposed to the lecture show, ka-ching, hear the money that it then became. I could see that, and that would be very interesting. You know, you could kind of see that, taking that idea that he has such power not because of how violent he is or all these other becoming parts of him, but just simply because of how clever he is and how he's able to manipulate other people. I think that would be well, that would have been an interesting way to go. Well, isn't that what the TV series did so well, well though? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, isn't, isn't that what um, Sherlock yeah. did so badly with uh, with the revelation of his sister? The fact that she can manipulate oh. people so adeptly, oh. she is essentially is essentially a superpower. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> anyway, you just make me very angry, Mister Wallace. Very angry indeed. <laughs> We'll get on to Sherlock next week, but could I just say now that, uh, yeah, I saw that the Emperor wasn't wearing any clothes quite early on with that one and said, no, guys, I'm out. So as it's getting quite late and we should get on to Manhunter, is there anything else that you want to say about Silence of the Lambs before I force us to go over? I feel like we haven't even started talking about Silence of the Lambs, to be honest with you. It is such I mean, its legacy is is everywhere, isn't it, really? It is such a rich and brilliant film. It is, there is so, right down to, years went by before I noticed that the skull on the back of the moth in all the advertising is the Dali photograph of of the naked women's bodies. It's like, Jesus, there is so much attention to detail in this. And we haven't even talked about how brilliant Anthony Heald is in this film, because this could yeah. be quite the fun town. Yeah. Well, right. I'm, kind of, I'm just, I'm just uh, my son has been on a bit of a medical drama tip and he's watched all of ER and he's also watching Grey's Anatomy. And I forgot that the actress who plays Catherine Baker Martin, she's uh, in Grey's Anatomy for one season. Oh. <laughs> as, a, as a surgeon. And there is a tiny hint of implication. I'm like, I'm sure that's meant to be the same person. They're just not mentioning it. She then became a surgeon, basically. Well, she's fantastic in that role as well, isn't it? You sick fuck! Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, mister, I think she broke a leg! <laughs> yeah. She's great. When she gets the dog, yeah. I like the way that she turns. She's brilliant. Uh, I think she's called Brooke Smith. She, yes, she's 
she got on really, really well with um, Ted Levine. They were friends, um, weren't they? Yes, to the point where Jodie Foster started to refer to her as... Um, Patty Hurst. <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah. Um, was it? Jonathan Demi said, yeah, the scenes in the pit were the hardest to film for obvious reasons because it was just so Unpleasant. upsetting. But that was like a sunken set and there was... No, sorry, it was an elevated set. So the floor was quite high up and there was a door at the bottom of the well that she could go Aww. into. So, uh, And then they hid it. Because I always just imagined that they just yeah, lowered her down there. But um, but no, she could actually walk there and go in through a door. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> so it wasn't too bad after all. Yeah, apart from the screaming and the... Uh... Oh, and the nail polish mm. on the side of the wall. Yeah. Isn't that an amazing Very moment? Insane. Just such a horrible, mute way of saying... Was a nail embedded into the wall, isn't it? Exactly, on, um, yeah. Uh, is it Gary Heidnick? Heidnick, he was... That's who they based. A lot yeah. of people, isn't it? Who ah. kept them in the pit. Did you read the Collector? Yes. John Fowles' book? Yeah. Yeah. It's that as well, isn't it? I mean, it is, right definitely. down to the butterflies. Yeah. And... That's a great shot, yeah. And the final scene! Isn't that a beautiful final scene? I love the story about Anthony Hopkins hiding out the back of cinemas. Did you read? Really, really like that? He would sometimes <laughs> hide in the back of cinema and go, and I like scare the crap out. I love that about him. <laughs> There's a comedian called Jade Adams who uh, recently brought herself a white linen suit and a hat. And, she, and she's very funny. She does Snapmasters. And, and uh, I just it really made me laugh because she realised, obviously, at a certain point, she looked like Hannibal Lecter at the end of Science of the Land. And she just basically did the sort of ta-ta. She did a little spoof on the, on Instagram. And it really made me laugh. So it shows the power is still there. I read a version of the script today, um, which ends with Hannibal basically saying, you know, goodbye, Clarice. You're more, you know, it's more, the world's more interesting with you in it. And then explicitly going to torture children whose entourage he's killed and he hasn't strapped to a table. That's right. <laughs> it, it, ends with like, it ends with like Dr. Chilton, shall we begin? That's yeah. it, yeah. Thank God they didn't do that because it's like that would have just been like a standard horror yeah. film ending. But the end shot is from Daughters of Darkness, which is a 70s Euro vampire film with a yeah, very heavy lesbian uh, subtext yeah. to it. Are you torturing children, Ian, now? <laughs> I am, actually. I've just been joined by a 10-year-old. Hello, 10-year-old. Hello. Now, go downstairs and rub the lotion on your skin. <laughs> <laughs> so inappropriate, but so wonderful. You're up so late. What are you doing up so late? It's 10 o'clock. It's loud. Oh, I'm being loud. I beg your pardon. I'll be very quiet. I'll be quiet like a mouse. Night, night, bug. So we've been talking around Manhunter through our Silence of the Lambs discussion, but now let's move on to Manhunter. Have you ever seen blood on the moonlight well? William, you're going to make yourself sick or get yourself killed. Multiple trails. Just you and me now, sport. One hunter. I'm gonna find him, damn it. FBI agent Will Graham. Man hunter. The true hero of Manhunter, I think, as you said, Sarah, was Brian Dennehy. Because he said to Michael Mann, I really, really want this role. It's such a great role and I really want it. But there's this guy that you need to see. He's called Brian Cox and is in a play called Rat in the Skull. Yeah, go and see. 
Yes. And he was like, so he really wanted the role, but said, there's someone who's going to be better at it than me. Yes. And Brian Cox was the one that got it. And it's also one of those things that Michael Mann on the audio commentaries, Manhunter said, we were tempted to put more of him in because one, Brian Cox was doing some great stuff, but also he was such a great character. But we ultimately decided that you should leave the audience wanting more of him. Yeah. So just give him like a few absolutely perfect scenes and leave them wanting more. There's one thing that he was going to do, and actually did do, was when he calls Will Graham, Yeah, he says, I yeah. just called to say I love you and starts to yeah. sing the song, which was a really big hit at the time. I'm kind of glad that didn't go in there. because no, it would have felt a bit, it might have almost, <laughs> the thing that's interesting watching the film is, even though it's kind of dated, it almost isn't now. It almost, yes. yeah. and that might have slightly dated it, I think. Absolutely. That's Yeah, it's interesting because when this film came out, it got some good reviews, but it got a lot of negative reviews that said it was all surface and no depth. God, that's such um, a mad criticism to throw at it, isn't it? It is, yeah, it's, it's it is, so much it, emotion in this film. Absolutely. And it, was doing, and it was doing things that other thrillers weren't, and it's like, well, do you think there's anything going on beneath the surface in this movie with the whole idea of... Well, the, scene, the scene in the supermarket between Will and his son... Oh, it's I, I think it's it, I think it works it? so well because it is in the context of of a thriller. Yeah, it is like it. it the film has literally sort of slowed down for a moment to give this kind of character beat that resonates because you know in a minute it's going to be Tom Noonan in some neon again. Like not saying there's anything wrong with that. I love the TV series, but like Sarah, like you were saying, I, I to be honest, I've been sort of watching the second half of series three this week, and I'm speeding through it. It's like I'm not yeah. as interested in it at all it does not compare to the way that um, Manhunter tells that story. I don't believe for a second that TV's Will Graham has anything like a family. And obviously Ed Norton doesn't have a family, but no. this Will Graham totally does. And it kills him to be away from them. And it's exactly why he has to do it. Yeah. And they all understand that. A lesser film would have had moments where Molly argues with him to stay or, or to give it up. But in this, it's like, nope. You can help. You have to it's help. More important, yeah, exactly. And it is so mature and reasonable and human. It's uh, and so natural and a cut above any number of other ways of doing this film. Yeah, actually, we should also give the plot synopsis for this. So, um, so the plot synopsis for Manhunter, which is based on the book Red Dragon, is uh, basically exactly the same as Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I mean. He knew a good idea was worth going back to. So the plot of Manhunter is um, uh, Will Graham, who is an FBI consultant. He has a profound empathy. He can put himself in the mindset of a killer and understand their motivation. And motivation will then lead to them being able to predict what he's going to do next. But he has to go and consult with a brilliant, insane psychiatrist who's kept in a maximum security institution called Hannibal Lecter and it's a race against time to catch the killer before he kills again that's exactly the same plot to the silence of the lambs except it isn't is it because no, it is, though, yeah, it is. Graham does not need to <laughs> Graham does not need to consult with Lecter it all boils down to Lecter saying you just want to get the scent back smell yourself yeah. he goes back to Lecter because he, he wants to be he wants to grub around in it and Hmm. there's the wonderful thing basically all that Lecter does is give Graham the push that this our boy is doing this because if you do what God does often enough you become as God is and it it takes for all of Graham's empathy he doesn't have the narcissism of Lecter and so that's why I think it is the same because it's like he the same as Starling he goes because as you said for all his empathy he 
can't completely understand the psychology of the tooth fairy in the same way that Lecter can. And it's seeing the dreams, isn't it? Because that's the wonderful thing that he, he gets to say. He says, you can't afford for me to see what your dreams are. And mm. Lecter is, is a shortcut there to say, it's God. He, it's, he wants to be like God. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, it's like Graham figures it out by looking at the bolt cutters and looking at the padlock and oh, and doing detective work. It's a shame that Will Graham and Chris Starling get, I mean, the big show is Lecter and that's, you know, but it's a shame because as characters, they're really interesting characters. And the thing they both have in common is they're both kind of reckless in pursuit of truth and rescue to the detriment of themselves. They kind of, yes. they will take on something dangerous that is is hard to put a barrier against, but they're doing it sort of, you know, out of love, really. I mean, mm-hmm. Will understands the cost of, of taking down all those barriers and letting himself understand. And, and I think definitely in Red Dragon and in, in Manhunter, it, there's much, it's not so much about he will become the bad guy. To, to do this opens him up to be their target and that's absolutely the cost isn't it it's about they keep going back to that line don't they they he knows who you are now you're putting yourself in the frame i won't i won't be the one to arrest him i won't shoot him like yes of course you will (laughs) you have to because he who hunts monsters has to make sure that it's not just that you don't become them if you know that you have to get them as well Mm. Um, i think that's that's really interesting and i think that is the thing that he and clarice have in common and they make a point of highlighting clarice's youth because it helps show that she would be reckless in a way another agent wouldn't and so that you need that to be in the situations that, that she ends up in to solve the crime and that will graham is reckless in the same way because he wants to save you know whole families you can't blame him so talking about obsession and recklessness um and going back to uh the showrunner behind mindhunter i think i just kind of wanted to name check um called zodiac of course which is might kind of be like the definitive idea of there's a monster out there. Yeah. Everything else kind of, no matter what else you're doing with your life, this thing is always there. You can't. Uh, well, that's an awesome film because there's an absence there. There is no killer at the heart of that film. It's yeah. about what the absence of the killer does to you, what it does to your peace of mind. And it will go on forever because there can't be a solution. Whereas these are films with solutions and these are films with... X marks the spot at the end of it. Yeah. There's an interesting class element to Will and Clarice in the books that yes. isn't really in either of the films. There's, you know, Clarice is quite chippy in terms of the insecurity that she feels around her class. And um, and Will, I think, has like a similar thing to him as well. Because don't they say there's a, uh, one of Clarice's relations had his university diploma put on his headstone? I believe, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right. It's, See, one um, of the reasons I love Clarice is I very much relate to that. My, my family, but on both sides, my mum and my dad, not not very well off, very bad backgrounds. And, and really, in the end, the only thing that you can do to change your circumstances is is to either be clever or to be, like work hard and study and become clever and give yourself an opportunity that only really education can give you in certain circumstances. Even if you win a huge amount of money, it doesn't necessarily change your circumstances if your your mind doesn't change or you you don't you know find ways to build on it and I think that that's one of the things that characterizes both that's why Elector is so angry at Will Graham because he sees him as beneath him and yet he beat him there's that's there, a really interesting the reason there? yeah there, there's the line uh, that's both in Manhunter and in Red Dragon where it's um and there's another reason pray tell that you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for then by implication you think you're smarter than me since you caught me no 
I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. It's the idea, like, if you're, you're out there dropping bodies, especially if you're not moving around, after a, like, after a certain point, you're probably going to get caught. Yeah. And that also is mirrored in the conversation with Clarice when she he says, but I didn't take trophies. And she says, no, you ate yours. And she, it's exactly the same. Impression. That's a slap in the face line, yeah, isn't it? But it's, it's exactly really the same. It's, it's the same response. It's the same reply. And it, I think both Clarice and Will Graham, in, in tiny ways, strip away Lecter's fantasy of himself, which is why he's, and in the case of Clarice, he's intrigued by it. But in the case of Will Graham, he's threatened and infuriated with him. And that again, comes out of the research. Um, John Douglas says a depressing amount of serial killers are caught, not because of great detective work, but because they get so blasé and they're so completely sure of their own abilities that they slip up. Well, that's the weird thing about, this is why they're not psychopaths, that these people aren't psychopaths, is it? Because the, the, the psychopath has got no sense of consequence and it's got no, there is no obsession. They decompress, don't they? They become, it becomes like a, 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 a circle that eventually is destructive. It is, you know, it is a cycle. Well, they'll make, yeah, yeah. They, they, they're not, they're not great planners and they, they don't, they don't stress. <laughs> that, they, they're the line in the book all the time, isn't it? That Lecter does not worry about things. No. It's like, that, that's where they sort of like fall down. There's that wonderful thing, isn't there, about um, psychopaths getting electric shocks do you remember this no, you've got all um it was a prison experiment some sort of obviously a prison yeah. i can only imagine it was done in the 70s mm-hmm. and in california but they get the prisoners and they all line them up and said and they electrocute them one after the other just give them an electric shock and all, all the time also they're you know they're taking their blood pressure and their heart rate and whatnot and the psychopaths are the ones whose heart rate doesn't rise yeah. don't rise or don't show any kind of stress because they can't conceive of an effect there's no tying together of cause and effect with them yeah and i was looking up today what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath you would not believe how quickly google search knows what you're going to type in (laughs) (laughs) and it seemed to be that a psychopath is someone like Lecter who can pass themselves off as a completely normal and functioning member of society but can also do these things has the inability to form any kind of attachment other than ones that will gratify himself and a sociopath, by these readings that I was looking at, is someone who um, is more reckless, more impulsive, can form emotional attachments with people who are very, very similar to them. And that's the kind of um, a serial killer that will kill in pairs. So yeah. they might not do it on their own, but if they find someone else, then they will like yeah, goad each other on. And the Silence of the Lambs Criterion DVD has some case files from the FBI, and one of those was just... Uh, I can't even repeat what it was going on about, but it was it was a pair of serial killers, and it was like haunting what they were doing um, and how. Oh, is, is, is that is that is that the the what was played just to Scott Glenn? Yes, that's right. Um, so Scott Glenn, who I haven't even talked about, yes, he um, listened to a tape because they wanted to have like a trophy, so they were taking Polaroids. They also said, "Well, we can actually audio record this. We can get um, a tape recorder." So they yeah. recorded themselves torturing some of their victims, and um, yeah, Scott Glenn was played a minute of that, and it was a bit green around the game apparently it's interesting you, you can you can segue via scott glenn though because he is a fantastic crawford and it's funny that he wasn't crawford in manhunter given that he was in the keep um as yes yes, did, yes yeah. that's right so he's, he, he looks better with long hair doesn't he <laughs> and light coming out of his mouth and eyes yes <laughs> found your look scott <laughs> oh, fighting for in mckellen i love the keep, I love the keep so much 
we saw the keep didn't we rob yes there was um i think we watched it, it was our third film that night and i think it kind of left me a bit punch drunk i know i've got a friend who works at the bfi and he one of his constant uh, he and i are on the same page always and he's always trying to get michael Mann to give him like the full the full like version of the keep just everything just give them like, i know you hate it but just give it to us we'll have it and we'll do something with it no it's so mad Scott Glenn really nails the stoic Crawford, I think. Absolutely. But I love the way that he gives uh, Starling the points for when Starling calls him up on being inadequate. I gave you an A, A minus. And, you know, it matters. These men look to you for how to behave. It's a point taken. And there's there's little notes where they undercut that stoic company man persona. It's, It's really good. Even the fact that he's He's dozing off in the car, isn't he? Yeah, that's he's right. Like... It's a, a deleted scene at John Hopkins, actually. I wonder if one of the reasons it's deleted is because Crawford comes across as such a dick in it. He's a, and you yeah. need well, some... I mean, he is kind of a dick. If you stop and think about what he's he doing, is a dick. he does, oh, yeah. you know, he's using Clarice, really, uh, in a dangerous way. But those deleted scenes really render him very unlikable, so that might be the other reason they cut them. Have you seen them? Yeah, the deleted scenes of him in the John Hopkins... Mm. Oh, I've not seen I've them. Got, um, oh. I've got the special edition. I've got the special edition DVD that was years and years. I don't know if they've ever that was out years ago. And it's got stuff on it. I'm sure that's not even on the Criterion. Um, yeah, that's not on the Criterion. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thought that was dropped at script stage. Wow, that's amazing. No, no, I, I, I watched it that. today. I can wow. yeah, I watched it today. It's on. Um, there's a whole big making of documentary called Into the Labyrinth, which is like a retrospective mm. on where they are now. There's a, the featurette they showed on BBC at the time about the making of, how it was going to be coming out soon, how excited everybody was about it. And then there's all there's literally like 21 deleted scenes. And they're all <laughs> brushes. They're all, some of them are, you can see that they're not colour matched and they're grainy. And it's got um, about four or five of him pursuing the Doctor around John Hopkins being pretty, I mean, I do wonder if it's some of them are, just first takes it because he's being really aggressive and he's saying to him about you know basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to le- leak it to the press that you yeah. you know you won't help us stop somebody killing women and this will be in the press front page of the press every week until your hospital and your programs closed down it's really harsh uh, yeah that's verbatim the dialogue from the book isn't it, it is yeah. isn't it yeah well that's amazing yeah, 21, I, must, I mean there's 21 odd deleted 22 deleted scenes and bloopers and and, I've, and one of the reasons I've kept the, the DVD and I you know travelled to the other side of the world and back because I lived in Australia for a while and then brought it all back again, is I've never seen any of that stuff subsequently on anything. And it was a special edition DVD that I brought like years ago. When it yeah, hold on to that because there Absolutely. are, I think there are six cut scenes on the Criterion DVD. Blimey. I'll, I'll take a photo of the screen. I'll take a screenshot of the, the list of all the things and show it's crazy. So I was watching because oh, yeah. I, I thought, oh, I'll watch that today while I wrote some notes. To make me sound smarter. (laughs) (laughs) But Dennis Farina, I think, is... Oh, I love Dennis Farina. He's the closest, I think, to how Crawford is described in the book. He's sort of like... Really? Harvey Keitel? How peculiar. (laughs) (laughs) Because I, of course, watched The Silence of the Lambs and it was uh, Scott Glenn and you think, yeah, that's Crawford. And then you watch Manhunter and it's like, well, this guy looks like a mafia boss. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and... Yeah, the irony being that he was a policeman in real life. He's playing that 50s G-man, isn't he, Crawford? That's absolutely, I like it, but that's exactly what he's doing. But the thing that I really, really like about Manhunter is that, and uh, to your point, it looks less dated now than maybe in like early 90s, is that it's such a modernist film and they scouted out the best locations for it. So the institute that Lecter's in is an art gallery. It's a modern art gallery that apparently was very, very famous at the time. And there's a real look to the film of like, 
there's all that kind of post 50s American modernism, isn't there? Like Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. This is like a civilized society. This is a very ordered, civilized world that we live in, but we can't contain these things that keep erupting into violence. And then when the violence happens, it's like, or when you see the violence with the crime scene of the bedroom and there's blood all over the sheets and all over the walls, it just makes it even more stark. It's so well designed. Definitely. Mm. Have you seen the documentary with Dante Spinotti about the filming of it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, where he, he discusses, it's brilliant, isn't it? Where he discusses that basically it, the use of colour is, and every everything within it is carefully constructed to give you people's emotional state or state of mind. Funnily enough, you can tell it's the 80s that blues represent um, kind of Will Graham and love and the family, and the use of greens is what he uses more greens and, and weird purples for the presence of kind of madness and uh, <laughs> you know it's quite interesting isn't it i kind of think of i think of blues very 80s so james cameron blue you think of as a very 80s color yeah that's right but it's really interesting the way that that film which is really really modernist they also um approached it from a gothic perspective as well in terms of dollar Hyde's house has yeah. lots of slanted angles so that the shadows being cast were kind of unusual and look like gothic so it's kind of like a neo-gothic thing going on in there and weird kind of prints and strange kind of uh, colours, yeah. yeah. The prints are gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah, they yeah. Re- it really does look like an alien landscape. It does. But there's also that sweeping gothic, the pan up to a closed door that the heroes on the other side are just about to open. They do that a couple of times, don't they? They the do. So there's something weird presence in a building that's going to swoop up at you. They do a lot of hard duchies, and they also do a lot of low kind of shots where you see the ceiling. So you feel like everything is pressing down. They do that kind of Citizen yeah. Kane thing, don't they? Of the ceiling mm. being lowered to give you a, sen- a sense of something else. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm intrigued by the thought that it could have been directed by David Lynch. Just yeah. thinking back to going back to Elephant Man. Obviously, or obviously, the the good Doctor Treves in Elephant Man is Hopkins. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also intriguing that the Lynch turned it down because he said it was degenerate and the same year that manhunter came out he did blue velvet which was also yeah. accused of being degenerate um a lot more so than manhunter but it is as time goes on manhunter looks more and more gorgeous doesn't it and more i mean it's high art house essentially mm. i would argue and it right reminds me i don't know if you agree with this rob that there is that same argento kind of italian gallo sheen on it as well yeah the blue filters and yeah the gels yeah, you said. Well, I mean, Dante Spinetti talks about that, doesn't he? That he'd only come from he come from Italian. It was his first American film, and he was. I mean, I think he was expecting to have to rein it in, and instead they were like, "No, do more of this." And there's always a kind of sense of him like, "Yes." Uh, but Ian, when you watched it recently, you said it was just a profoundly sad movie, and it it is. It is. It's yeah. a really. It's that grief thing, isn't it? There is nothing more felling than that single sock, that discarded child sock on the stair. And then immediately followed up with the penguin and always going back to the answer phone outgoing message. Sorry, I can't take your call right now. That awesome sense of something terrible has happened and it is absolutely transcends the horror movie tropes of Silence of the Lambs in a lot of ways. It is that sense that these are families. And what did they what did these families have in common? They were happy. It's Mm. awful. It's such an awful awful crime and that's what makes it so strange you don't see noonan commit the crimes it's always after the fact and for one thing i don't think anyone would have seen the film if you'd have seen what happens but there's that great quote like i can't remember what i've seen it in, and i think it really applies to man slightly science the lambs but 
the idea that um, it's horror implied instead of horror explained. That's Thomas Harris, I think, uh, in terms of his the best interpretations of his work. But Manhunter is absolutely horror implied. And instead, you, you have the emotional resonance of everything. And I, mean, I, th- I think that William Peterson is exceptional. Yeah, oh, he's amazing yeah. in this. He looks ill, doesn't he? I mean, he's he lithe and, and as, as famously the dialogue says, he's very tan. But yeah. he, he's still like this. There's something just being cut out of him. And that awful scene where he's in the, the aeroplane and he falls asleep. And the, oh, the photos. But he's having a sex dream, isn't he? He's, he's yeah. dreaming of being with Molly. And so he wakes up because the child is terrified. And that look of guilt on his face that he's woken up infected with Dollar Hyde's sense of guilt. But he carries the, the horrors with him, doesn't he? He's like he's infected by them. And, and yet he's also the only thing that can stand against them. And that kind of goes to my point about just trying to contain this horror that keeps erupting. Because that scene on the plane, I think, is just one of the best scenes of the film. And it, it is. It's going from like this very nice dream and it's high-key lighting and it's out on this azure blue sea and is with this woman that he loves. And then it does a hard cut, I think, to the crime scene photos. And then yeah. to the girl. And that girl is great. The way that she takes a second to kind of process what she's looking at and then to be overwhelmed by it, turns to her mum, is like, that's just such a heartbreaking scene. that's the thing is that I think the film is it kind of chokes me up at the end to be honest when he's talking about the turtles it's like oh yeah which shouldn't work should it no. but it is absolutely they're going to make it they made it and for and me Graham will sleep in the silence of the turtles <laughs> <laughs> the silence of the turtles the silence of the turtles that's what right. you're <laughs> so how many of the ninja turtles made it almost all of them almost all of them made it Donatello didn't make it but it's interesting that um on screen, Will Graham is treated much better than... It, I do find how Harris is about Will Graham really interesting. I remember reading in a literary review that he, they said he has this unforgivable kind of policy of, of wounding and scarring Will Graham. He does, yeah. he does have him attacked endlessly. Well, um, I think that's... You see, I, I think we're going to argue about this the next time we talk. Yeah. But I think it's really... I mean, I, when it comes down to what you were saying, Sarah, that Lecter hates... Graham in the books and in the movie because you know he's disdainful of Lecter doesn't appreciate what Lecter has but at the same time the way that Harris can spend so much time creating such a wonderful picture this portrait of Graham and then all he is in the second book is a drunk yeah he's an an ugly drunk and that's that's the thing he has to scar Graham to the extent physically and psychologically to the extent that he can write him out because otherwise, yeah. everyone's going to be just waiting for him to turn up in Science of the Lambs. I don't think it's that. I think it's that it's just, he's callous. He's, he's a callous writer. He's created the character and he can just step away from it. He kind of takes umbrage, you know, against him for things. Or he, I mean, it, it, it's a very good plot device. It does it does shock you and jolt you. It's interesting that it's, nobody has carried it over on screen. I can remember, so I worked for a long time in a bookshop and I can remember reading some of the book trades and bef- long before Hannibal came out, long before anybody knew what was going to happen in Silence of the Lambs, I can remember reading about him being in Italy researching the sequel to the book Silence of the Lambs and I swear I read somewhere that it was going to feature Will Graham. And I do, wow. I do wonder 
what got thrown on the bonfire, basically. Yeah. I, I do feel like he is teeing Graham up and the mention of him in Silence of the Lambs is important because he is mentioned in a throwaway way in which he does, he seeds other stuff in. And so I, I do, there's, yeah, there's part of me. So I, I wonder what would have happened if Silence of the Lambs had not become such a juggernaut. By the way, I'm not meowing if you hear a load of noise. One of the cats is very angry I've shut the door and is scrabbling at the door and meowing. So the strange noise is not me. <laughs> well, I think the thing with it, I mean, yes, we'll get on to Hannibal next week and I am quite looking forward to that. But I think that is a book that does a disservice to every single character that he's... Oh, I disagree. I totally disagree. And it's so... And it, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to having that conversation with you because it just does. <laughs> <laughs> Rob. <laughs> it is Thomas Harris saying, this is what you wanted. Don't complain when you get it. Mm, yeah. But we'll get on to that next week. But yes, with Manhunter, interestingly, the scene in The Silence of the Lambs, when Clarice is talking about the lambs and telling the story about like yeah, when she tried to rescue one of the lambs, which is actually better in, for a cinema audience that it's a lamb that she tries to save, because in the book it's a horse, horse, isn't it? And it's like mm. it doesn't quite have the same emotional yeah, resonance it's, 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 it's like a lamb and uh, it's like there's, there are lambs and there are horses. It's like, yeah, just go for one. It's just basically young animals in general. Yes, indeed. If it's cute, go with it. it yeah, that's <laughs> there was a horse I mean, that's and there was a lamb riding on it and it was, it was a whole thing. Uh, it was, yeah, the silence of the petting zoo. But the way that shot is the same way that the first meeting between Will and Hannibal Lecter shot, that it starts off with, you know, one's on the right side of the frame, one's on, on yeah, the left side yeah. of the frame. As it goes on, they both move to the middle. So every single cut between them is a match cut. And obviously, yeah, they're doing two different things, but it's it's interesting that they both chose to have a key scene with Lecter in that way. And a man was obsessed, wasn't he, with getting that shot exactly right, mirroring mm. the, the two of them in Manhunter. And you eventually end up with the bars not being apparent and it's just showing the mirroring of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great scene. scene. And every version of it that's been done has absolutely lifted the dialogue verbatim, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it's just absolutely flawless dialogue. Um, see, he can do it when he tries, but um, <laughs> but to your point, Ian, about the professionalism of Starling, Rob, your discourtesy is unspeakably ugly <laughs> to me. Well, mm. I find that your discourtesy towards the character of um, Clarice is unspeakably ugly to me. And what's to be done about that? <laughs> 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 the, your point about the professionalism of Starling, when I watched Manhunter, the first time that I watched Manhunter, which was after Silence of the Lambs, I was one of those, like, yeah, Johnny Come Lately, who was like, oh, there's another film, and yeah, let's watch that. Although I did read the Empire review as well, and it was an issue too. Kim Newman gave it the five star reviews. The professionalism, you just get a sense of you are just watching professionals doing their job, and yeah. that scene when they've got the notes. It's still the, mm. I was going to say, that's the forensics and stuff. I very nearly invited my sister Lucy to this shindig because my sister Lucy is equally a fan, but she also is a scientist and very nearly went into forensics just because of her love of, uh, of Manhunter and of the books. And she said that they, it is so, I mean, it's still beloved, isn't it, by the industry because it doesn't play fast and loose. They do just show the kind of the grunt work and also how the forensics worked and it's quite interesting you look at I mean I've read quite a lot about serial killers and you, you think about when this genre exploded the other thing that changed is the technology to catch people caught up with them and that's in a way how there ended up being this kind of rise in the these sort of pattern one day pattern killers or whatever it is they would call them it was more that the forensics and the science of investigation 
allowed them to catch people or make the connections. I mean, there, there is a, a curve you can see with the, the fingerprinting indexes and forensics and the things that happened. So it's not so much that the, these people had never existed before, um, 60s, 70s, you know, but it's, they, can now, they could now catch them, they could now find them. Well, that's the interesting point. That's, that's, that's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Really, really, I remember um, was it Ludovic Kennedy did a TV series in the 80s that was all about forensic medicine. Yeah. And it was kind of like, it was like, oh, and they took, a, they took a print of his teeth from the apple he took a bite out of. And the, oh, brilliant. Well, even now they have crimes, don't they, that um, the, the, they can have DNA that they now can process in ways that can help solve crimes that have previously been on something. You know, there's all, even now things like this are happening. It's, it is fascinating. It is. It reminds me, though, um, do you remember when Seven came out? Yes. And it was almost like, what do you mean they check? Like, what do you mean they keep a record of what library books we read? And <laughs> it's like, that was so quaintly naive. <laughs> it's like now. Because now, now we know that the serial killer in Seven, he wouldn't need to do any of that. He'd have like a QAnon account and his own webpage. And he wouldn't bother him with any of that. Do you know what I mean? It's like exactly. he'd be internet famous. <laughs> you exactly just you that. just have to steal them from the library on the military base. Yeah. You've just got to see yeah. him insta. That's right. Well, it's like the um, it's like that film, The Net, the Sandra Bullock film, when it was uh, like they knew where she was because she used a cash card. And it's like <laughs> it's Johnny Lee Miller again in Hackers, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and hackers. the idea of privacy is changing. But that rise of the serial killer thing as well in the 80s, I remember it being because it was coming up for the 100th anniversary of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And you suddenly couldn't move for Jack the Ripper. And everyone talking about, you know what they believe? They believe if you took a photograph of their eyes, you'd be able to see who the last thing is. See, that's science, that is. That's the sun of science. Mm-hmm. With that kind of science, we'll be able <laughs> Unless it's a giant monkey. If it's a giant monkey, it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> monkey! <laughs> <laughs> John Douglas said that's the first example in literature of a behavioural scientist, isn't it? Murders in the room all because he mm. figures it out by saying, oh, this is how he's thinking. He's thinking he wants a banana. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I, I'd, I'd love to see the Hannibal Wipe version of that. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that a monkey? <laughs> <laughs> Everything's better with a monkey. <laughs> well, look at the success of Godzilla vs. Kong. Monkey fight, bring it on! We all want monkey fight. But there's a line, and I'll see if it's on YouTube, but there's a line when Crawford says to his PA, get the chopper and this, 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 this and this, and just says it in such a barrage of information and orders, and then says, do you understand? And you just know that she does, that she's trained to write in like a shorthand that means she can capture all this and then tell all the different departments yeah. what they need to do mm. and it's like this is extraordinary and it's also the fact that it, it's an action scene it's like this is they've got yeah. this piece of paper and they're running from this place to the other and it's cut and shot and paced like an action scene it's real time isn't it it's like yeah. you're so sly but so am i where he does the horoscope yeah <laughs> which then became a motto of the film crew yeah um that they all started saying it such a great line that is Michael Mann has the ability to render anything riveting. And that I think that's the thing that works so well with it. Because all of that stuff is really, really compelling. And it, mm. and also, just like in the book, it has a timer running on it. You know, the idea yeah. that, that Lecter will figure it out, basically. Yeah. That is what's so, so splendid about those first two novels, isn't it? And yeah. The, those first two stories, it's like, this is a race against time. The full moon is coming in 12 days. We've got 12 days. You know, yeah. She is missing. She's, you know, he, he does it in seven days and then you'll find the body. And it's like there's always a timer ticking. 
Well, I was yeah. reading, um, I can't remember her name, but there's a, a crime writer who found herself in the position of having like a, a free kind of Zoom masterclass with Thomas Harris about her writing because he was, he was locked in during the pandemic and ended up just Zooming her a lot. And I, he, I'm sure he used to do twice a year a special writer's kind of weekend you could go to in New York. It, I hate to admit this, but years and years ago when I thought I might be a writer, I looked at seeing if I could even go because I was such a fan. So he, he used to, and then he you know, became massively wealthy and stopped doing it. And hmm. she said, it's interesting, you get told the structure of, of thrillers and um, horror books, and you're meant to have reached a compelling crisis point by about page 28, and Harris is there by page six, and that's his motto. And you, <laughs> and he's and she's not wrong because every, you know those first two books, you literally that's it. You know they hook you in. I've read them so many times, but rereading them for this has been being reminded of how compelling they are, what page turners they are. So, but at the same time, at the same time, so much detail. Oh, so dense. That anybody else you would think, oh, I, I really up. don't care about that. Yeah, yeah. But in this, everything adds to this gorgeous picture. Yeah. Absolutely And, and such lovely um, phrases, like the stuff in Silent mm. Salams where he talks about Clarice falling asleep next to the washer dryer and how it's like being in the womb and our, our yes. first sounds of peace. Or yeah. she has to find more about this, this this creature, this moth, something that feeds on tears, you know, all of that kind of stuff. There's so much in it. And Painting I always the remember yeah. the, the line about Dolleride where he's, you know, damned murderer of 11 listens to a heartbeat time and time again. Really, mm. I mean, there's some really beautiful stuff in there. Yes, there really is. Yeah. That's interesting, Sarah, what you were saying about page six, because... That's why I think it translates well to films, because yeah. that's the same thing with screenwriting, is that yeah. you don't wait for page 30. You get it in within the first six minutes or so. Yeah. yeah. Well, Silence has it with that scene. She says, the psychiatrist, Hannibal Lecter. And she goes, Hannibal the cannibal. And it's like, right, that's it. You know, you're, you're absolutely in for the ride, aren't yeah. you, immediately. I mean, even at the, at the beginning with her running, and it, it, yeah, I, sorry, yeah, you're right. It's, as soon as she says Hannibal the cannibal, you know what you're going to get. But also the bit at the beginning where it has the... Her finishing her run and it has her next to the sign that says pain, suffering, F- or whatever. Love you know. it. Yeah. Yeah. Which wasn't set dressing. That is actually what's there because they're so hard. But the thing about Manhunter when I was watching it was like, it's, it was just so radical at the time that you would spend 80 minutes on the investigation and then stop the film and go over to the killer forming an unexpected emotional relationship with this woman and it's like is this this is the killer that we're watching now right but it's not doing killer stuff he's doing things that are completely freaking him out because he's now discovered this inside of him and it's just oh it's just so amazing to watch that for the first time the relationship with reba i think is is the thing that makes red dragon and made red dragon different from a lot of in any format it's the redeeming bit of red dragon as bad as red dragon is all the stuff with dollar eyed and reba all the stuff with emily um is watson uh yeah yeah and um and ray fines is it's so good it's such a strong idea it's so interesting and well written they're such unusual characters but still compelling that it works even in that it's most literal being studied over the head every five minutes to tell and show and then tell some more that is Red Dragon. I'm like, just stop. It's already dead. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel watching it. He's already dead. Stop hitting him. <laughs> it's like the system. You know, you've, you've just smashed it into the ground. Shut up. But the, all those bits are alive in the way the rest of the film isn't. Because it's such, it is so strong. And they're, no matter who's playing them, if they can act, it works really well. Joan Allen is amazing. Oh, Joan well, Allen is fantastic. She? The scene with the tiger is exceptional. The scene with the tiger is so, that is, oh, that's what blows you away. It's like, I can see that in a screenplay, 
but it is so well done in the novel. It's something that is so visual and so sensual. And it uses... And like, um, but it does it perfectly in prose. That bit of uh, instrumental, um, it's an electronic instrumental, Kawili Camp by the same a band of the same name, who I think are an offshoot of something to do with Tangerine. I mean, I used to know a bit more about me, me whittly, whittly prog nonsense uh, back in the day, <laughs> just because I found it, partly because of Manhunter, because it's so in, the use of sound mm. is so interesting in the film. You know, my horror story for that is I've always loved Tangerine Dream, but I only realised I love them because I grew up watching Street Hawk. I was going to say, you're going to say airport, uh, airport's on <laughs> arrival from Street Hawk, aren't you? <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Which is uh, a banger. I have hidden shallows. But what's wonderful about the, the romance is that it is actually Dollar Hyde's horrible master plan working, isn't it? Yeah. He is becoming more confident. He is becoming more settled as a human he's becoming more attractive oh god is donald hyde an incel of course well of course he is he's got that awful there's that awful scene where he's staring he's driving his van and he looks down at the woman in the car next to him and you know is looking at her leg and she catches him and he spits exactly but it's not even that is it he because first of all he's he's shocked and ashamed it's then he has the wherewithal to spit at her and it's that he's an yeah, that's awful human being. But she is attracted to the fact he's got no pity in him. He has but no pity. But she's the first person who's kind to him, though. That's yeah. the other thing. I think that's the thing that's very sad with Dolor. I think that's the thing that Harris does so well, mm. is that he's a tremendously sad character. And, and you have, I mean, I absolutely love Peterson's performance of it because it nails the essence of the book where he says that my, my heart bleeds for him as a child. Somebody took a child and manufactured a monster. As an adult, I want to blow the sick fuck out of his socks. Such an awesome line. And, and then yet- he turns and he says, does that kind of understanding disturb you? And it's lo- it's Lecter. He's being Lecter. Mm. He's an empath. I mean, he's a pure empath, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ian, about the fact that it's working, that he is actually becoming something that uh, can love and be loved. It's his natural shape. I think this is what's quite clever about what Harris does, is that he does actually say, okay, these people, their end result, their ultimate, they are becoming, it is a certain thing. What they're becoming is revolting and repulsive, but it is honestly who they are. And there's there's something to that. I think there's there's nuance to his right. There's the wonderful line that he gives Lecter at the end of Red Dragon, where he says, we live in primitive times, don't we? Is it neither savage nor wise? A civilised mm. society would either give me my books or kill me. Yeah, And it's like, yeah, and that's like that that works. It's kind of like it's totally in character. It's kind of cutting as a line. But then a couple of paragraphs later, Harris gives Graham the line that we can't outrun something like we can't outrun the violence of who we are. But that little bit of violence that remains in us is the vaccinating virus. Have I got that right? He's sort of like yeah, saying that yeah. that horrible cruelty in us is just enough that we can overcome it and use it to be better. And so there's an optimistic line. He gives, in spite of all the malice, he gives Graham an optimistic, well-rounded perspective. I'm so interested to discuss um, Hannibal, the arc of Hannibal, in the context of that quote, of those two quotes. Uh, the series? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. indeed, definitely. Well, you said it best, Sarah. You said that the Red Dragon in the TV series isn't as compelling because... It's just not. But it's also because, like you say, they've told that story time and time again. That's yeah. basically what the story is about, about what Will Graham becomes and what Hannibal Lecter becomes. Yeah, it, it's, it's awesome for that. But it's just gorgeous in Manhunter. 
It's just so well done. That wounded face, that cleft palate that makes him look like a big cat, doesn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, right. he does. I can remember as well, though, was it the poster or there was a promotional shot at the time with his, I can't remember what scene, maybe it's from the end or it's from when he's, he's looking at me, where you just see Dolorite's face out of the blackness. Mm, that's the um, video cover, yes. Yeah, it reminds me of the shot from The Exorcist yes. where you see Beaz reads it. It's exactly that's like that, That's a really good it? call. That's a really good call. Yeah, yeah. But it's Honestly, also made yeah. to look like a moon, isn't it? His, his head is like yeah. a moon because obviously he works on a lunar cycle. It's really mm. clever artwork, that is. What I like about Manhunter especially, and I think considering how the coolness of the filming style of the time and the cinematography, it's incredibly sympathetic and empathetic to the victims. Mm. It's one of the things I really like about both, you know, Clarice and Will Graham. But Will Graham, you know, he, he's desperately sad about what's happened. As you said, you know, the shot of the children's um, sock and the, the dispassionate language around what happens doesn't d- diminish how awful this is, mm. that he's seen these happy families and he's killed them yeah. Yeah. out of kind of jealousy and out of rage and out of a fantasy. And, you know, as a result of all the things that have happened to him, we know if you've read the book. And it's, it's interesting and a testament to how good a filmmaker Michael Mann is that you get that without it being explained, really. At least when you read the book, you then have the full story of just how awful everything that happened to Francis was and why he is as he is. Oh, God, that you line. You don't have that in that yeah. you, don't, you still understand it. It's very clever. It's that perfect example of really good filmmaking, which is show, don't tell. And you sort of, you get, and, and I have to say um, that, you know, Tom Noonan's performance is fantastic. As Dollar Ride as well. He, he manages to show things without ha- moving his face, really. And he does it without really much of the Red Dragon material. Like, obviously, yeah. you've still got Reba, and and without really the the abuse, um, the backstory is not really conveyed in any way. Yeah. He's just somebody who... You have nothing about his mother. His house is modern, mm-hmm. you know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. He, well, yeah, I can't imagine... Man, uh, Michael Mann shooting a turn of the century house. I just can't. I, no, I just don't think you know, right. there's. What do you mean? What do you mean? It's not wall to ceiling glass, uh, uh, floor to ceiling glass. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know what to do. Where with are it. the fluorescent lights? Exactly. <laughs> um, Where's the boat and the water? <laughs> and I, I think I think the film benefits from. And I know Rob's previously not necessarily in the pod, talked about Noonan's sort of, you know, really incredible audition for the role. But I think the role really benefits from someone with Noonan's striking physicality. Because, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not going to delve into his backstory. In the so You need somebody who immediately makes this impression. His deliberate way of speaking and that direct way of speaking, which, again, is something that attracts Reba to him, isn't it? I, you're direct in your speech, yeah. and I appreciate that. When Noonan says, uh, it would give me pleasure to drive you. It's a chilling yeah, read. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. And at the same time, this it almost transubstantial is he's kind of like a wisp, like this dust in light, this character. It's oh, so well done. And then he does. And we haven't even mentioned Lounds yet. Oh, my God. I was going to say, oh, we have to get on to Freddie Lounds. But there was, there was one thing, um, I think it was you, Sarah, on, the, on our WhatsApp group when you said that it's a great example of a filmmaker making, freely adapting something and making some very, very big changes to the book, but capturing it, the tone of the book, in a way that a slavishly um, faithful remake doesn't. He kind of changes the Red Dragon character, kind of changes the reason why it's happening. The ending's completely different. Will actually has like a biological family. It's not the son from another relationship. But it's still a really great adaptation of the book and is is really, really faithful to the book in its tone and what the book is trying to say. 
in a way that Red Dragon, as we'll talk about more next week, uh, just isn't. <laughs> it just doesn't. It? it captures the heart, the dark and, and the light heart, doesn't it? Yeah. Of the book in a way. And it is, it's sort of shattering the emotional as well. I mean, the end, I mean, I know that, I remember the the Empire Review says it's kind of when it does erupt into violence, it's sort of it's, it's dazzling and overwhelming, and that is true. And it's interesting too, given given when it's made and given kind of the genre that it is in of the time of the kind of flashy jump cut, you know, that this is in the era of, of video nasties and stuff. That actually, he man chooses to adapt away from the fake out, the villain is still alive ending. Yeah. Yes, so that's right. Which is really a really interesting choice because in the book. It works, but now subsequently you go, well, actually, you probably wouldn't do that if you're writing now because it's so obviously that, oh, he's not really dead. You know, Michael Mann has returned, having been shot five times. It's exactly in that trope of the the monster is not really dead till you kill him yourself. And it works. It works. That ending is just fantastic with Will Graham saying that he can't wait because there's a, there's someone in there with him. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. He can't leave her. He will. He has to go. And, and that is exactly like Clarice. And that's a bit of the story that actually is good that it's the same. Yeah. Really. Mm. That that is there. They're both that character. And it does have that wonderful moment where he jumps through the window. Even though you can kind of see that it's a stuntman, it doesn't matter because it's such a great moment where yeah. you just slowly see something coming out of the darkness and it's this guy just running towards the window. Just... The iron butterflies in a gathered of Vida, like building to it's perfect, it's perfect. And the great story behind that is um, Michael Mann based Dollarhide on a guy called Dennis Wayne Wallace, and who was a serial killer. And yeah. he had this imagined relationship with a woman that he met for 45 minutes and just thought that they were lovers. And they had a song and that was their song. In the gutter of Eden. I think that song is about 45 minutes long as well. Isn't it? <laughs> That's right. I think is the full version of it. I can't remember if it's 14 minutes. It's or 14 I, minutes. I have it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. really long. Go back and watch the Simpsons episode. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> I remember making out to this hymn. <laughs> that's right. I remember being with my sister as a teenage, teenager in her friend's car and playing the Manhunter soundtrack in both her and her friend going, can you turn it off? I don't like it. <laughs> so it's really good. Like, no, stop listening to it. You're freaking us out. Heathens. <laughs> As time's getting on, let's get on to Freddie Lowndes and the wonderful Stephen yes. Lang. Over oh, to you guys. Oh, bless his heart. Oh, the most convincing, isn't he? He's like, so scared. tabloid <laughs> hack ever on screen. He's perfect. I love the way that they have this sense where um, obviously it's a Michael Mann film. So they all dress exactly the same. Yes. But, but Freddie Lowndes is wearing Will Graham's outfit just badly. This kind of like shiny, baggy, grey, blue, green. It just looks like a sweat stain that put on a suit and walked off. It's such a hideous human being. But then in the novel, Thomas Harris gives him an utterly sympathetic character play as well. As yeah. He can be both things. He can be despicable and have this real heart to him. And Graham gets that wonderful scene at Lowndes funeral in the book, doesn't he? And it's like Yeah, with the with his girl with the girlfriend who takes the, the dive in I love that into the grave. And the what's book. the name and what's the name of because she's a stri- do you remember the name of her strip club? I can't remember it's something really funny, isn't it's it? It's awesome because her name's Wendy, so her strip club's called the Wendy City. The Wendy City, <laughs> that's, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah. And she said and I, when he said oh it's what he when she said, Oh, they paid me to take that dive into the grave and, and just what well, says that's what he would have wanted and I love that. Yes. <laughs> 
in the book, I really like that Will Graham is much more of a, a cop. He's much more of a, a diligent on the beat. Do you know what I mean? There's He's a bit more of that. He's also a scientist as well, isn't he? Because yeah, he Zeller is, gets yeah. that line about, I read your thing about um, insect decomposition, isn't it? And, and, yeah. and it's like, it's like, isn't that what Gil Grissom's specialty is in CSI? I told you, that's why Danny Cannon cast him. He, he made such an impression. It's, so I remember reading somewhere, it's Danny Cannon's film, the film that made him want to be a film director was Manhunter. And he thought so highly of William Peterson that he remembered him when he finally got his chance in Hollywood. He was making CSI and he didn't want anybody else for that role. Hmm. But wow. when you think about William Peterson at that point, he was, where, you know, where was he? He wasn't doing yeah. anything, was he? No, exactly. And it made him a household name again. I used to love watching that series. CSI, particularly the first season, was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Good secondary characters as well. Yeah, yeah, really good. And and an aesthetic that actually is not a million miles away from Manhunter. No, exactly that. Yeah. It's so just sort of, it shouldn't work. Should, there shouldn't be humanity in this weird neon strip mall city. But it's, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's he's totally, I mean, that is his love letter to Manhunter. And you can sort of tell, mm. I think. With all the, it's like if the forensics team in Manhunter had their own show, it's CSI basically. That's what oh, it is. but wouldn't you want to see a TV series that was all about Cats and Zeller and Jimmy Price from the TV yes. series? Yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I just watched the bit um, the other day. Um, <laughs> Jimmy Price is so furious that Dollar Hyde is killing cats. That <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, he did just kill children. Yeah, I know, but I, I really like cats. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, because in the book he doesn't kill the dog, but in in Red Dragon he does. I'm like, dick move, <laughs> dick move, <laughs> gotta hide. <laughs> Quickly to go back to Freddie Lounge, just because the again when I first watched it as a teen, that scene when he reads out the note, and <gasps> oh. it's just like, what are you doing with your voice? How how are you sounding that genuinely terrified? I know this is acting, but your throat sounds like it's just a dry pace that you're having to try and make sound through because you're so terrified do you remember reading that they they deliberately kept tom noonan away from everybody on set nobody ever saw him yeah. unless they until they had their scene with him apart from uh jen allen as reba because they had he was only he only interacted with people as dollar eyed and they made him fly separately from everyone they you know Michael kept this up to force this sense of strangeness and built him up as this really scary thing. So a lot of them were quite freaked out with him. And I love the bit on the making of where uh, Tom Newman said he would have to, in between takes, he had to keep in the mindset, he'd have to go back to his trailer and just sit in the dark. And Michael Mann would sometimes come and sit in the dark with him in the trailer. I love that. For me, it's the it's the line that Freddie Lowndes gets when he says, oh no, like something along the lines of, oh no, please God, not me. Yeah. When, 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 you, when, you, when you get the impression that this is somebody who's written about this sort of thing for so long that he's become detached yeah. from yeah. it, and now he's actually having to confront the fact that like people, this happens to it? people, and this is happening to him. It's almost like he's an ant in the afterbirth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he has one so he's job. He's privy to a great becoming. <laughs> It was actually Noonan's idea as well. He said that he wanted to stay separate from most of the cast, which meant that when it came to rehearsing, they had to arrange it so that people could go into different rooms as like anti-rooms so that he wouldn't be seeing them. And it was yeah. so, yeah, like amazing that they were doing this. But there's another thing that Noonan did. Oh, that's right. When he first went for the audition and Michael Mann said, oh, I don't know to, he said, yeah, do you mind if we don't do small talk? I just want yeah. to do this. I said, oh, that's <laughs> a good start. 
I, lo- I love the thought that maybe when Noonan, Noonan wasn't, you know, rehearsing with the rest of the cast, that they had to give the rest of the cast an eye line. So it's literally like somebody holding something like, uh, like an assistant holding something like a good six inches above their head and everybody looking at this eye line being like, what? <laughs> Such a good point. It probably was that though, Rob. It's like, that's yeah. the thing is that you can think, of, yeah, didn't, because apparently the first time that, that he and William Pearson met was that mm-hmm. scene when he's holding him and he cuts his face. Yeah. Which is the very end of the film. Then they went for breakfast afterwards. Afterwards. But that's the They had no no virtually no crew left. Like when he gets shot, all the blood splurts behind him are apparently people squirting tomato ketchup out of the tubes. Because virtually nobody was left. They were just making up their own effects, basically. And then William Peterson hurt his leg because Michael Mann smashed all the jars and stuff and threw the glass on the floor and then threw William Peterson into it to get the shots. But it was, it's fine because it was the very end of the shoot, so yeah. that was fine. But I, lo- I love stories like that. It's like I always loved, um, I remember seeing this big long interview with Stan Winston where he talked about in The Terminator, they had no money left at all and they had to do the final shot of it being squashed in the press and they had no money. And he went out and he got two bits of foam rubber mm. that he sprayed grey and a tin foil, a bit of tin foil and a Christmas light and they used that to simulate the eye of the Terminator being squashed between two plates in the press. And he blew some cigarette smoke from the cigarette he was smoking in to obscure. And that, that's literally the final shot of the robot. <laughs> and then and this sounds like the same thing, that they're like squirting ketchup and, you know, relying on, on weird shadows and camera angles. Tom <laughs> Noon had to lie in the big red dragon-shaped blood puddle for so long that when they, they all came to finish shooting, he was stuck to the floor and they couldn't get him up. <laughs> <laughs> cooked under the lights wasn't it, it was uh yeah. that's the thing though because this film cost 11 million dollars and was shot in eight weeks the science of lambs had a 22 week shoot manhunter was shot really in like a gorilla style because they were shoot because they had to move so fast i mean there's the scene of the airplane with a girl the crew just went on and booked themselves on a flight and shot it on the way to another location yeah. and and they checked all their equipment on as um hand luggage and put it together <laughs> where it's like, and they didn't tell anyone they were going to do it and then had to placate the cabin crew and the pilot with Manhunter crew jackets. Michael Mann is, is at his best, I think, when he does that, really, because a lot of the stuff they filmed in, in Heat, didn't they, that was sort of slightly, they didn't quite have the permission they should have had oh, really? and on the fly. Yeah, with some of the, the shootout stuff downtown, they didn't actually properly have permission. Oh, and anyway, <laughs> but that's like um, the original. Once again, the original Terminator. They didn't have permission for. And I do think sometimes there is the sense of urgency you see on screen is real. So <laughs> I, think, I think Manhunter. I think it, it the emotional heart of it. I think William Peterson's performance brings that emotional heart. Mm kind of more than anything else even when he's sort of slightly scuppered with a entirely superfluous 80 sex scene to show us he's not gay um, <laughs> but, yeah. it's, it's, it's fine but it, it, it kind of you can it not hand wave it it's, it's fine because they you know you believe their relationship so that's i actually quite like that i think that scene is what he's giving up that's his last moment yeah. of, of happiness before he puts himself back into the abyss i actually thought that was quite a justified sex scene and in the 80s that's really saying something but uh it is an 80s true, sex true. scene though isn't it it's oh, like it is. obviously what is the point of this sheet it's got the consistency of a wet wipe like a normal sort of 80s sex scene i've been watching <laughs> tequila sunrise where literally one of the i'm like what is this sex scene like it's like no i really want an emerging from the, the sea like a bloody dolphin in like morning light i'm really oh. looking forward to showing my kids highlander and it's like oh, notwithstanding oh. the violence 
and the swearing, that ridiculous 80s sex scene, it's, it's what means yeah. they can't see it just yet. But also, yeah. just the, 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 there wouldn't be in an action film like that now. And also the fact that, it, what does it show us? That the way to get a woman to go to bed with you is to stab yourself in the heart in front of her. <laughs> it's worked like, for me. Know, nothing is with heart, like getting them to stab you in the heart. Because we watched Highland do it, the other because Ben's not seen it before, and it was epic to watch with it. And in fact, he and I now endlessly spam each other with gifts that say, there can be only one. And quite often just say that to each other in that accent. So, Ian, Ian, you're not you're not worried about the sunken lounge. You're not worried that's going to give the boys property envy that they'll never be able to quench. Best property in movies ever. Exactly. I'm like, it's such an inefficient use of space. I want <laughs> I want all fish tanks to turn into Scottish locks as well. Yes, indeed. My God, transitions in that film are absolutely amazing. Oh, it's brilliant. It's such a great film. Awesome film. Imagine trying to make that now. Can you imagine going and pitching that film? Did you see when Clancy Brown cropped up in Promising Young Woman the other week? Really? <gasps> yeah. Love Clancy Brown. See, he oh. would have been quite a good dollar eye, wouldn't he? He would have been a good dollar eye. Actually, I think with the remake. Crawford. I think, oh, Crawford, yeah. He would have been fantastic, Crawford. Crawford. I was thinking if the- they remade it and made it interestingly, you would get someone thinking about Tom Noonan's performance in Manhunter. You'd get someone like um, Doug Jones. You'd get a performance artist, I think. You'd get a creature. Performer oh, Jones would be excellent. Yeah, some it needs somebody with the physical. And I'm, you know, Ray Fiennes is a good actor, and he obviously body built for the role, and he's incredibly sympathetic. But it, it was a very strange choice to have a man who's famous for his voice playing a character who struggles with his voice. And it would have been better to have a the physical, the physicality of him. It doesn't. He doesn't even have to be hugely buff because Tom Noon isn't, and yet he's incredibly interesting on screen. Is that strange alien physical presence? of the yeah. dragon he doesn't need the tattoo or anything. i mean they didn't put it on him in the end but he doesn't need it because he embodies it's interesting his body language when he is the dragon is is so good it's so interesting and strange and i think that would have been the way to go I and mean, you know that's a really good point richard armitage just doesn't make any impact does he no and i like richard armitage actually he's he's really a really good actor but he's just he does i don't know who's his casting agent but he, i don't know <laughs> like really <laughs> This guy in that role, really? It's like Duray Scott. It's like these people I thought were going to be yeah. absolutely everywhere and they never, yeah. Okay, well, as it's half past 11 <laughs> and I'm on a lunar cycle and it is getting close to midnight, so I need... <laughs> <laughs> You're going to go out and stand in, in blood in the moonlight. Yes, indeed. And my neighbours really, really are beginning to get annoyed with me now. But um, <laughs> just because, you know, they say it's not appropriate. Have you got the blood right yet, Rob, or do you still need to source it? I just uh, use a liquid Nutella because it appears quite black. Yes. Chocolate syrup appears quite black on screen. Almost more upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) And not to mention that if somebody turns the light on, you look like you've had a catastrophic bowel accident and they're actually been serial killing. All bowel accidents are catastrophic. (laughs) True. Is there anything else to say about the wonderful film Manhunter? Well, the, I mean, the filming of it is ridiculous, the way they use colour and shape uh, to show people's mental breakdown. I think everybody should watch it anyway because it manages to reach into the emotional heart of what Harris is trying to get at, especially in Red Dragon, even with the changes it makes from the narrative. For me, like, yeah, as much as I love The Silence of the Lambs, it's Manhunter's the one that chokes me up at the end. That's the one that uh, it yeah. just has such an emotional resonance to it. What's Graham's line at the end? He says, I'm so tired of you crazy sons of bitches or something. He just, yeah, this, I like this, that. It's a wonderful thing. It's saying, I have just got no time for you fucking scumbags. <laughs> and this is very controversial, but I, I believe in his version of 
Here is Will Graham's special power, where he's talking through the house. He's thinking about why they behave the way they do. He's making connections. That I believe that more than any other version of it I've seen, including the Hannibal series of he's Will logical, Graham. He's logical. Yeah, it, you believe it comes out of a, a place of extreme empathy, being able to put himself emotionally in the same place as people, but also out of experience of police work and the intelligence yeah. around forensics. You see it all collide in that the way he plays it, I think. You're absolutely right. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. Is that wonderful thing about it's such a weird talent because he has to keep repeating the point that is the anagnorisis, isn't it? So it's baby powder. There's no baby powder in the bathroom. So where did the baby come? She was very lovely. And you can see the, the keys turning. You can see the lock forming. And so it comes out as being something that seems like, oh, I just suddenly had an epiphany is actually built on logic and observation. It's really really well done definitely he wouldn't be able to do the things he does if he wasn't in the job and the role he is and that's where Hannibal underestimates him Hannibal assumes everybody's like him and has come to this revelation of specialness and is entirely a legend in their own mind he because he is a snob and he doesn't understand hard work and he doesn't understand people wanting to aspire to something other than just being cleverer than everyone else he doesn't understand that all of those things are what make Will Graham able to catch him and cleverer than him. He's not just clever for the sake of clever. He is a sum of so many parts that other people have taught him. And I can say this because I have unfortunately had contact with a sociopathic narcissist in my life and they do assume that just specialness and cleverness is all and they totally underestimate human connection and the effects that have on us and how we learn and react from other people because they are so used to only being in their own brilliance i'm yeah, i'm really sorry about rob i know he, he means <laughs> rob that's so weird i was gonna say the same thing i was gonna say yeah rob that's right <laughs> I, th- I thought i'd beat you to it <laughs> three seconds funnier than me <laughs> i think we're autobiography now yeah that's right <laughs> I was going to do, I was going to do a, with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the title of your sex tape. I thought, no, that's not fair. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I think this is quite a good place to wrap it up. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's a testament to these films that we could go on for another three hours, but yeah, um, so rich. I need to let you know at some point. Thank you so much to our wonderful guests. We need to do plugs as well, don't we? So, um, Sarah, if people wanted to find you on the internet, <laughs> where do you lurk? <laughs> Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter as Strapping Lass, all one word. And you can find me from that on Instagram as well. And I am going to be dipping my toe into a podcast, but I will talk more about that at a later date. And hopefully we can help each other out and you can come on it as well, because I'm going to talk about television. Oh, brilliant. Um, So I'm hopefully going to finally do my my television review. We have a scoop. Yes, yes, hopefully. And Ian? Um, I've got stuff at um, www.mrcarapus.co.uk. And do you lurk on Twitter? You don't, do you? Oh, not for a million to years. Okay. So, um, we'll go to Carapus because it's a very, very fine site. And Rob? Oh, okay. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. Uh, you can find my, my occasional writings at uh, of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And I recently appeared on the... TV Time podcast hosted very, you know, very, very uh, by the uh, by the brilliant uh, Lucy Bluebass, and we uh, we discussed House, talking about going back to medical dramas. We uh, we did an yeah. in-depth discussion on the uh, the very the many merits of yeah of of uh, the House TV series. Is that live now? 
that is now that now live and available. I haven't listened to the playback yet, so there's it's I'm there's a there's a small possibility I may be insufferable. But if I wasn't no. if 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 if, if, <laughs> if, I, if I if I wasn't willing to risk that, then I I, I wouldn't be here this evening. Yes, and uh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll put a link to that into the show notes. Then, excellent. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel underscore Brevity, um, <laughs> and my writing is at electric shadows dot com. More importantly, if you want to follow the Robcast, it is at Movie Robcast on Twitter. And if you liked what you heard tonight, then please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. It is. Always appreciated, and it helps us out. I want to leave a review for you now, saying it was very interesting, even for a layman. <laughs> Please do that, because that would be fucking brilliant. <laughs> so this is part one of our lamtastic Harris extravaganza. The bordello of or whatever it is. <laughs> yes, that's Can't right. we call it a lambada? Oh. That's it. <laughs> Who should we do in the lambada again? Charcuterie platter of uh, Harris. <laughs> <laughs> we shall be... Continuing this. Do you remember the name of Dom DeLuise's character in <laughs> Silence of the Hands? No, what is it? It's Dr. Animal Cannibal Pizza. <laughs> Come on, Ian. <laughs> I am in need of a big amorelli. I'm Jack's complete lack of surprise. Yeah, I, am. I am Jack's complete lack of garlic bread. But uh, yes, no. um, in the next episode, we shall be continuing our lecter exploration with what came next, with all the lecter films that came afterwards and all the lecter books that came afterwards and the TV series Hannibal and Clarice as well. Mm. So, yes, that promises to be fun as well. And hopefully Ian will have seen the way about the Hannibal book. By the time we get to that, actually, hopefully not, because um, can't wait to see how you're going to justify that book, Ian. <laughs> so, not yes. sure it's the hill to die on. <laughs> but I am glad that you're choosing to do it. I haven't wa- I haven't watched Hannibal Rising yet. Do I have um, to? You don't have to. I watched it on Sunday. It's that's fine. You've answered the question. Yeah, it's. I also haven't watched Red Dragon yet. Do I have to? Yeah, you do. Like we all had to suffer. You need to watch that one again. It is interesting, though. It is like watching a sort of Hallmark film from 91. Really. Yeah. It is, isn't it? It feels mm. so cheap. It really does. And Ian, you were quite funny when that film first came out. So, um, <laughs> about the issues that you had with it. So, you need to watch it again. I think my main issue with the watch it was having to watch it. I, I yeah. Yeah, but there was nuance to the points that you were making within it. <laughs> so, yes, that will be the next episode. And for now thank you guys for joining us thank you it's been my pleasure i look forward to next week certainly indeed and thank you for listening and we will speak to you again very very soon i do wish we could chat longer but i'm having an old friend for dinner bye Dr. Lecter.